Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. And welcome to episode 71 of Anime World Order. This is the podcast for you to listen to if you want to uh, hear about weird anime and manga and all that good stuff. I am Gerald Rathkulp, and with me, as always... Daryl Surratt, feeling the gun of having signed up for entirely too many panels at anime cons coming soon, as well as volunteering to write articles for Otaku USA. What am I thinking? What are you thinking? What's thinking up with you? That I just will never need to play video games ever again. Yeah. The same thing that I'm thinking, I guess. Which, by the way, I'm... Who are you? I'm Clarissa. I am the odd person out. How are you the odd person out? I'm the only one who's not doing any writing. Because I'm the only one that doesn't have a penis. I beg to differ. The, the internet says different, <laughs> but... Anyway, our website, www.animeworldorder.com. Email us at animeworldorder at gmail.com. Or call our voicemail at 206-666-4296. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, we did say just now that this is the podcast to listen to to talk about weird anime. So I figured after a year of procrastination and uh, putting this off, I figure now is the time to talk about part three of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Woo, finally! Fine anime cartoon <laughs> That you can now no longer purchase or read thanks to Islamo <laughs> Fosses. Now it's like religious conservative types. With a very awesome dog. One of the most awesome dogs I think ever in anime. He's going to be featured in a panel of mine coming up shortly. Oh, really? Speaking of anime that you may no longer purchase or watch, I'm going to be talking about a series that I've been promising to review for a long time now the 1977. TV series Nobody's Boy Remy, which was released over here by Imagination, and because their DVD distributor flaked out, it's kind of hard to find now, because they didn't yep. print up a whole lot of copies. In fact, they printed up one copy for every purchase that was made. Right, it was burn on demand, yeah. get DVD-Rs. Maybe something will happen and people can see it, because they should. Yeah. Also, just to entice people to listen to this thing, because you know it's 1977 and all, was done by the supergroup. It's 1978, according to TV's Patrick Macias. Well, he's wrong. He's wrong Ooh. as his hair is wrong. Them's fighting words. You're going to get it at <laughs> AWA. Yeah, as long as you don't do what Aaron did and call him an attacky hipster, then you, you know, you'll be relatively in the clear as far as the path of rage because you'll kill Aaron first. But isn't Aaron also but a hipster? But he'll be next. Yeah. Yes. So, I don't know what's up with her. He's not a tacky hipster. He's she's, she's not a hipster. She's a nerd girl. She's just a nerd girl, an ordinary nerd girl. No, no, no. I, I think she called him an otaku hipster, not a tacky hipster. Oh, I just heard tacky hipster. <laughs> but yeah, I, as I was saying, the director uh, Osamu Dezaki and uh, animation director and character designer Akio Sugino, virtually everything they've done is awesome. Virtually. Virtually. Except for that Takugei show, which wasn't so good. Yeah. But yeah. And Clarissa, you've got the most awesome thing of all, I think. Uh, 
Sort of? No, no. It depends on your definition I mean, of awesome. I mean, JoJo's going to have to take a, a back seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I am also talking about something that you cannot buy, but that's because it was never available here for you to buy, and you should be very, very thankful for that. But I'm going to basically review this so that you don't ever, ever need to watch it. Um, you should watch it. Oh, God. You, I'm, I know they're going to. They're going to watch it because they're gluttons for punishment, just like they watched every other terrible thing we've reviewed. But don't tell me that I didn't warn you. We've talked at various times on this podcast, and there's been a lot of talk on the internet about how Japanese shows get adapted into American movies or other American shows or what have you, and they do a, a bad job of it. But th there's not as much talk about how badly it's possible for Japanese creation studios to fuck up American properties. This isn't We've, about uh, Batman Gotham Knight, no, right? No, no, it's not. Okay, good. I haven't seen that yet, but, um... Okay, I Spider-Man the Toku series? Because that, that was awesome. That's actually enjoyable. That was a substantial improvement <laughs> over Spider-Man 3. I don't know about that, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's definitely enjoyable. No, and I'm not talking about the subsequent Transformers series that were made in Japan, either. I am talking about the time that Japan tried to make their own animated version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Which you would think Japan would be able to do well because ninjas come from Japan, but it didn't really come out so well. Is this the same Ninja Turtles animation where April O'Neil has sex with one of the turtles and then slides down the, no. the stairs on his shell? No, that was That's actually made by Harvard students, if I'm <laughs> yes. not mistaken. Uh, you have to go to Harvard to think that up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Crank shows up. Come in my mouth. I'm glad that Harvard education is not going to waste on y yeah. useless well, things. So, Oh, yeah. Uh, Daryl has things to tell us about that involve conventions. In lieu of actually reading email, I uh, you know, mentioned in the last episode that when we all went to, to J-Con, I had gone to another convention right after J-Con. And I know certain naysayers and near-do-wells don't like the convention report coverage that we do because it's only conventions that we go to, but... They can go screw each other and no, start no, no, their no. own podcast. No, we should review conventions man. we've never gone to. Shit, yeah. that, that's a good that's idea. What, that's yeah. the next evolution. Yeah. That's like, you know, Wolverine and the X-Men after the evolution. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. just make up Starring. a bunch of shit. It'll yeah. be awesome. Convention so like, fanfic. Yeah, NecoCon yes, or whatever. SakuraCon. Uh, uh, yeah, all the way out <laughs> on the opposite coast. But no, this was Florida SuperCon, which I had reviewed once in a past episode of AWO, if you can go to the website and click on our tags, we've got a convention reports tag there, as well as a handy-dandy review index that has the list of all the previous shows we've ever done. So you can go and check that out. Is but this uh, Supercon, Florida Supercon or is this Florida Anime Supercon? Cause... This is specifically Florida Supercon. Okay. Because this is a convention for which there's the, the same group does two conventions. There's Florida Supercon and then there's Anime Supercon. And now they're branching out. There's going to be the Atlanta Supercon later this year in November, which is basically the deal with these shows are they're effectively comic book conventions, sci-fi cons, right. general interest yeah. sort of things. And I mentioned I went last year and there were a lot of problems that they could have stood to improve upon. But since they've had multiple shows between the show I went to and this one, I was hoping that there was going to be, you know, some changes. And there there were actually quite a bit of changes. For one, it was located in a much better 
hotel. I mean, we talked about in the JCon episode, the hotel and the location can actually make or break a convention mm-hmm. through no fault of the convention itself. Yeah. If it's in a bad hotel in an inconvenient location that can severely hamper your enjoyment of the weekend. And in this case, where Florida Supercon was held was in, um, and it's a place in Florida that was very centrally located such that if you're in South Florida anyway, you're very close to three of the major counties. Like I mean, most people in the world don't really know the location of Florida, but they kind of know there's a city called Miami and there's a city called Fort Lauderdale. Those are the cities called Orlando and these cities are all like, you know, right next to each other. Not quite. They're, you know, generally a couple hundred miles away. I guess maybe Miami is 45 minute drive. But anyway, Supercon is centrally located such that it's not terribly far away from any one of these places. They could draw in fans. I mean, we talked about just because JCon moved into Kissimmee from Orlando, a lot of people didn't want to show up yeah. because of that. Well, this one, it seemed like there were more people than last time, and it was fairly well attended. And I think overall, the convention was basically better in every single way. One of the keys of that, I think, was that it was sponsored by a comic book store that I went to when I was mm. a kid called Tate's Comics. They're basically the best comic book store in the state. If you live in New York City, maybe you know about places like uh, Forbidden Planet and some right. of the other very high-profile, world-renowned comic Coliseum book for a lot Coliseum of places. Coliseum was yeah. the other one, yeah. Tate's is basically comparable to that mm. as far as being able to, like in the early 90s. They don't have any in Orlando, was, do they? Tate's is just one store as far right, as I okay. can uh, know. And it's only located in South Florida, about 10, 15 minutes away. Oddly enough, I don't really shop there much anymore because this is the day and age of buying manga online. But right. back when anime was scarce, that was the place I went to get all my anime. I mean, the concept of downloading anime was impossible. You couldn't do it. You, you got to watch a gold light on through them, didn't you? <laughs> Who will be in Tatsunoko versus Capcom? Yes. <laughs> he looks like he's a very large Zangief-esque character. Yes. Maybe, maybe Sentinel-esque character, I should say. But what made Tate so great was that in the 90s, when comic book stores were shutting down left and right, Tate's was expanding because they were the store that stocked the anime. Right. I mean, the owner of the store, Tate, he really likes Crayon Shinchan, he really likes Akira, and so they kind of got the idea to buy all the anime DVDs and rent them out for $2 a tape. This was incredibly good for me because back then anime was $30 a tape yeah. if you wanted to see something. And so I'm really glad that they kept around and that they're very successful and they're even more successful now. They've got gaming satellite stores for tabletop and land gaming and all that stuff. And now they're kind of uh, helping to run this Florida Supercon. That's cool. And it's really well done. I mean, uh, another big sponsor was the local rock station, yeah. uh, 93 Rock, promoted this on the radio station. It's a pretty popular right. radio station here in South Florida. And so a lot of people came because of that. They had their big 93 Rock kiosk there where everyone was playing Guitar Hero 3. Mm. How appropriate. Well, one thing, yes. too, about Supercon, and this is why I always want to go and then never end up being able to get to it, but they always seem to have really cool guests. Yeah, they have. Um, some guests are always there. Basically, the reason they're kind of known in Florida and I guess soon to be Atlanta is they've always got at least some, if not all, of the cast of Aqua Teen Hunger Force at this convention. And Dana Snyder is the one who's almost always there. He's the voice of Master Shake. Right. And if any of you have never heard my previous report, 
the way Aqua Teen Hunger Force is made is they basically put Dana Snyder in a room and say go because he's basically <laughs> Master Shake all the time. And they really use him very well at this convention. Um, Did you get him to do year, another intro for us? I, I, I didn't because he's <laughs> actually completely swamped at this point. Not only are tons of people there to get his autograph, to get him to hmm. do messages and such, they've actually got him running panels and stuff now. Uh. Like they've got the Dana Snyder show where they kind of set it up as this sort of Johnny Carson Tonight Show thing where he has the guests of the convention on, but it's, you know, it's just him kibitzing and doing crazy So it's things. kind of like how George Lowe, like, comes to the he, anime conventions. He's very much like and, George Lowe, yeah. at, you know, in the central cons, and I, I'm not sure if George Lowe comes to Supercon or not. I don't think I saw him at this one, mm. but I could be wrong since George Lowe gets around. Well, but, George Lowe, for those who don't know, I believe he lives in Florida, doesn't he? Yes, he yeah. does live in Florida. So the he gets to a lot of local conventions. Yeah. Space goes coast to coast. But yeah, this is mainly not really an anime convention. Most of mm. the guests weren't really, uh, you know, Japanese. Right. Like, I wanted to go Con one time they had Kevin Conroy there, who's the voice of uh, right. Batman voice from of Batman. the animated, various animated series. And actually, he's the voice of Batman in Batman Gotham Knight. Nice. So maybe I can use that as an excuse to post the uh, very short interview I did with Kevin Conroy. I know I posted a brief excerpt of his panel as the start of uh, one of the episodes once, but I don't think I actually posted the interview. And I thought he was black, too. He's not. He's just yeah. uh, He's got a very very powerful vocal command. Mm. But uh, one of the big guests, I think the main guest for uh, this year at Florida Supercon, I always forget his name, but he played Dante in Clerks. And uh, he's actually <laughs> a really cool guy. Brian O'Halloran, yeah, that's his name. Yeah. He was there. He was the main guest. He's actually he's put on some weight. I wouldn't say he's gotten, like, crazy deformed the way Dave Foley has ever since Kids in the Hall and News Radio ended. That was his Dave Foley's cue to basically end 15 years. But he still looks basically like Dante. I mean, if you saw Clerks 2... Yeah. He looks like that. He, he's pretty good at getting material out of nothing. Like I walked into his panel, and he was effectively reading off all the absurd convention rules <laughs> that you have to abide by when you go to these conventions, things that are never really enforced. Like, you know, don't hit people with weapons. or you know. At this convention, the security staff on their bullhorns would actually be encouraging, go to that person for free hugs. Which is nightmarish. That's a bad so, idea. A really a bad ni- idea. It is a bad idea. And I, I'm not say I'm a, a fan of this, but it, it happened and it's real. So, like, I show up at the convention and it was actually in a much newer hotel than the previous one. The only problem was it was one of those deals where there was a wedding going on at the same time as the crazy oh, comic boy. book people. I guess the wedding people were not caught off guard by this. They knew full well in advance that this was going to befall them. Mm. What this means is we had to park across the street, walk over to the location in the the convention center sort of area, and then walk forward, not through the main door, because that's where the wedding was going on, walk very, very, very far all the way to the back, and then go in. This may not seem like very much of a big deal, but you have to remember this convention took place in Florida in June. That means the weather was roughly 95 degrees outside. Yeah. And that's a very humid. Yeah, yeah, you know, not not like degrees. you know Arizona or anything. It's it's miserable and, and nightmarish and horrible. But everybody, you just see like this large procession of people like a giant Pac-Man and all <laughs> sorts of weird things just waddling down this procession of traffic uh. and like <laughs> I'm just this, picturing this, this what you can get. <laughs> <laughs> was he making like the sound effects? Oh no, I wish he was making the sound no. effects, but 
I just want to not just to be. pretend looking into his mouth and seeing this really fat, wet, hairy, sweaty guy oh. just huffing and puffing as he's moving along. The main anime fandom-related guests, other than cosplay superstar Yaya Han, the main anime guest was Richard Epcar and Woo-hoo. his wife, Ellen Stern. I wish he'd come to some of the Orlando conventions. I think yeah, after I experiences in uh, with... Anime Express. I think he wants to stay as far away from Orlando as he can. Uh, probably. Anime uh, Express, for the record, is in Daytona. He actually, I, I asked him about Anime Express, and he kind of had like this lingering, distant memory of like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, <laughs> that's right." Richard Epcar is awesome. For those who don't know, he's the voice of Bato in Ghost in the Shell, and he's also directed tons and tons of anime dubs over the years. He's been around since the Streamline Pictures days. Very recognizable he's ben voice. Dixon. In Robotech yeah. and uh, various other roles like that. He was awesome. I did get to interview him for about 30 minutes. He's great. I'll probably see if I can talk to him again at Otakon. The guy's got such a huge list of things to just grill him about. The problem is just that he's done so much work that he can't remember things. So when he goes to his panel, he just has his IMDb thing and he basically reads it off. <laughs> and he says, and, and at one point he stops and he says, All right, whenever I say this, Everybody goes ballistic and asks me very specific things. Listen, I don't know anything about this, but I was in World of Warcraft. (laughs) (laughs) Warcraft 3, you know. (laughs) I was the priest. And then someone's like, which priest? There was more than one priest, you know. (laughs) I find a really good thing to do with Richard Epcar is at his panels just to ask him like a random word. Like, what was it like playing Cobra? And I don't know if he's ever played a guy named Cobra, but I'm sure that somewhere in his pantheon of work, <laughs> there's someone that resembles that, that he can just keep going and talking on. He's always terrified because a lot of the things are just, you do it and then you go to the next one. Right. Because he, he's, he gets enough work that he has his own studio now at this point. He does a lot of work on video games. Another thing everyone knows before, Xenosaga. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. another big one. But other than the characters that he's been playing... For years and years, like Bato, he's been at least 10 years now of being Bato. Yeah, because he was Bato even back for the original Ghost in the Shell movie, right? Yeah, it right. was. The yeah. 1994 one that is released by manga, he was in that. And he was also in the dub of Ghost in the Shell 2 Innocence, but there are two dubs of that movie. There's one that he directed, right. which he is also the voice of. And then, for whatever reason... Now they're deciding to bring out the dubbed version of Innocence here. They've redubbed that entire film using the same voice cast what? as the original dub. Why? It's something strange. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have rights to that dub? It could be that. Huh. It could be something else. But basically, Richard Epcar was the voice of Bato, and a lot of the same people from Standalone Complex and all that were brought in to do that dub that he did, which is only available on the Region 2 DVD of Innocence. Interesting. And now for the Region 1 one, they're making another got pretty dub. much all of them again, saying pretty much the same lines as before, only they're being directed to speak differently. And one of the things that he complained about is whenever... A lot of people, like in uh, Standalone Complex and the other movies and the like, when they dub Bato, they take a lot of the bass out of his voice. He doesn't like that. I'll probably save that for his own words if I post this interview at some point. But yeah, he's always (laughs) great. If you see him at a convention, go see him. He will be at Otakon, although I'm, again, there's going to be a lot of crap going on at Otakon this year. I have no idea. If memory serves right, I believe he's been to Otakon like two or three times, and he's had to cancel each time. Uh, I think because, right. like, stuff happens right around Otakon or something, always. 
Right. So. Yeah, that was one of the main things I went there for. There was also, I guess, uh, the game room there was actually, I mean, we talked about Anime Express just now, which was a very small local convention uh, here. And we briefly alluded to this during our JCon live recording of Snack Time Online. But the people running the game room, they actually used to run anime conventions here in Florida. It was KuniCon and the like. Remember that they were oh, going to run like, lots and lots of these things. And there was a big, huge fandom stink over this because they were running lots of conventions and they didn't really have equipment and staff and they decided Spooky Electric might be a good person to be on staff. Oh, God. And uh, they still Nobody have... knows who Spooky Electric is, but... That's, that's too bad. If, if they don't know who Spooky Electric is, then they need to listen to the truth segment of MetroCon... 2006, and they can learn all about the man, the mystery, the spooky electric. They held that one convention in Miami where the parking was like $70. Yeah, so it was crazy. But I will say this. They have a very, very, very good video game room, and the guy who runs it actually has a video game-related business, and I believe they were also running the J-Con video game room, and they do a very good job at that. At this convention, it was an improvement over the J-Con one because they had like the original... NES and the original SNES and Genesis, and they also had the Saint Seiya fighting game for the PS2 right next to the Hokuto Ken <laughs> PS2 fighting game. So that was like the corner of the 80s manliness revived fighting game yeah. section. So that, that was a pretty good time. I Although sadly, the Saint Seiya PS2 guys. fighting game is not as good as the uh, the Hokuto no Ken one. But then one, again, yeah. you know, the Hokuto no Ken one is made by the guys who did Guilty Gear, so... right. Although the Saint Seiya one, it does have the cut-ins where yeah, Athena comes in and wishes you back to life. <laughs> right, or, right. You, know, you ask her permission to die. It's all in there. Yeah. So, I mean, from that sense, it's worth it if you're a fan of Saint Seiya. Oh, sure, yeah. But yeah, Game Room was totally anime stuff. I mean, normally we talk about you go to these sci-fi conventions and it's all anime programming. You know what I mean? Like, it's just mm-hmm. there's the sci-fi stuff is the dealer's room. And if you want to actually do stuff... At some point, all that stuff shuts down, and it's anime only. Right. Supercon is a different story. The envisionment of Supercon that actually realizes the idea of another con that we went to once called Assimilation Con, where the idea was, let's do a sci-fi con, but anime-style programming Mm -hmm. and the like. Mm -hmm. I think that's what Supercon is at this point, because there's a lot of programming there as far as people doing panels about stuff and having game shows and events not just here's the dealer's room and uh, go have at it. Uh, I really like this idea. I wish more sci-fi cons would gear up for this sort of approach. It leaves you with least things to do if you don't feel like arguing with the crazy guy over paying $75 for X-Men whatever. So I hope people who attend sci-fi cons or media cons are like take notice of this because face it, how many people who go to these cons nowadays are... Also anime fans, would you say? Um, uh, like, let's say Megacon. Megacon has a lot because um, some of the anime clubs like Anime Sushi and stuff do events there. It kind of varies. I would mm. say 30%, 40%. A third? That's yeah. fair? Yeah. yeah, probably fair. It may be more at some. A lot of the staffers were in anime costume right. at this place. I mean, uh, if I have to give like a negative of Flora Supercon, it's their registration. Think of this. Here's the way that uh, the badge check worked for a convention. There's one hallway. At end of one hallway is a desk, like a lobby sort of desk, like where you check in. About five feet away from that is the entrance to the dealer's room, where there is no door. 
There is just uh, a guy with a megaphone saying, hold up your badge. Okay. Then on the sides of both of these are artist alley tables. You can imagine that it is impossible to get in or get out <laughs> of this weird choke point, as it were, because if you're either trying to register or get in, you've got to deal with people going in, coming out, lining up to register on Saturday yeah. and the like. It was pretty messy. I kind of hope that if I suggest one change, because they are going to be in the exact same location for Anime Supercon, I believe, and then for Florida Supercon again, because it's a pretty good location, that they should move that area mm. because it's just, it's too crazy. And also, uh, once again, I was able to just walk up and say, hi, I'm Press. Oh, sure, here you go. I wonder if this works for anybody. Hmm. I didn't say who I was or anything, but I'm obliged by my noblesse oblige to, to give this convention <laughs> report. Hmm. So Fuck you, Bochama. <laughs> Yeah, Kamen Rider, it's out of style. But anyway, yeah, Florida Supercon definitely like 1,000% improved from last time. I hope to see them fix up some more things. You know, it'll probably be a really, really good convention. It already is a pretty good convention. I talked to a lot of people who went to both J-Con and a Supercon. And uh, apologies to Joey Snackpants, but the unanimous decision for people who went to both was that they liked Supercon a lot more. And I think all of it has to do with the hotel situation yeah. like we had a good hotel yeah. for supercon we had a bad hotel for jcon and, and it's as simple as that yeah people generally like jcon it's really just this year that hotel was awful yeah right it's a professionally run convention right yes it is a for-profit convention right it is not just a, a fan-run thing i know i mentioned that they had stores sponsoring it like the comic book store as well as there's actually multiple comic book stores that sponsor it there's tropic comics which is down more and around miami area Tate's, like I said, that's around the Fort Lauderdale. Then there's Zaldiva, which is more like uh, collectibles and you know memorabilia, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Okay. And then you know you'd go in the dealer's room, and there'd also be like you know the local. Uh, when I say local, I mean local to the state of Florida, like the MMA cage fighting like group <laughs> with like their ring models and stuff, saying, "Oh yeah, the, the card is so and so. We're doing the thing here." Uh, Apparently, there is overlap. Do they have barbarian fighting at Supercon? Yes. Barbarian I mean, that's, that's fighting. <laughs> Barbarian brawls. It's this was a thing at that's been going it's on for a while. Always in the dealers' room. You've been seeing it a lot. Yeah. It's uh, usually often in the dealers' room. It's a corded off area where they have like the one-on-one -on -one mono -y mono oh, guys hitting okay. each other with foam All swords. Right. Yeah, yeah. Barbarian battles. And they've got they sometimes this guy dressed in fur snarling at you and things like that. Yeah. And when 300 came out, there was yeah. tons and tons of people who should not be wearing the cape and the you know, <laughs> underwear getup. Screaming about oh. Sparta. If you ever wander by this, it's really funny if you see guys who take this way too very seriously. seriously. They are and now that you very funny. It, they absolutely had this at Florida Supercon. Uh, and so uh, those, those people who take it way too seriously are so funny and sad. Just yeah, sad. I knew enough people that were in SCA that it doesn't seem bizarre to me at all. The thing is, in SCA, at least you're wearing, like, uh, metal stuff, but in this one, you're, yeah, you're hitting people with foam. Armor. You're fashioned armor, and you've got, like, a blade in your hand, right. at least for SCA. This is wedgie noodle. Nerf yeah. swords, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, between Not those unless guys, you're LARPing, the, in which case is yeah, serious business. In which case, yeah, it's serious business. Yeah. I mean, I saw Monster Camp. I know the deal. But this is, like... <laughs> An environment in which the hardcore I am a barbarian warrior meets up with the I am Zabusa of, you know. And the encounter is a memorable one. I 
I wish I took more pictures. Unfortunately, my camera died, Aww. and I always forget to charge the battery. I have so, got yeah, lots that's... of videos of these from previous conventions. In fact, I have a friend of ours who participated in this. Well, you should put them up on YouTube. Yeah, we're gonna, we've got our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Anime World Order. Please check this space. We have a friend who actually uh, teaches uh, karate during the day. That's his day job. And he participated in this with a bunch of people who have, uh, <laughs> who have not done this before. And it was very entertaining watching this. Yes. So. so, yeah, that's my report for Florida Supercon. I believe it's Supercon 3. That'll be it. I guess with that, we'd better get started with the news because it's going to be a doozy this week. Actually, I'm just going to cut in and say we're not going to do the news this week because we actually posted that last time on the show. So we're actually just going to get straight to the episode reviews. So let's get on with that. Yeah. What the? Oh, hold on one second. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hang on. Hold on. Yep. Okay, dude, I'm actually kind of in an interview right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, okay, oh, oh, oh. Okay. I hope this makes it into the episode. Like, random telephone calls, like, Dude, I'm in the middle of a conversation! Do you know who I'm talking to? No, anyway. <laughs> the movie you've been waiting for has finally arrived! Next time, R5 Central, episode 53, A Chat Behind the Mask, The Mark Musashi Interview, Saigoro Yinga, Kirisake Masada! Yay, T-Mobile, interrupting... Things since whenever. In 1969, Nippon Animation got an idea for a new sort of animated show. This was going to be something new. This was going to be a yearly television series that was going to animate a number of classical works of literature. The first one that was animated was actually directed by a guy named Gisaburo Sugi, who is accustomed to working on fine works of classical animation, classical works such as Night on the Galactic Railroad and, of course, Street Fighter, the animated movie. <laughs> Both of them are... Uh... Astonishing classics. I've, of course, covered yes. Street Fighter, uh, Night in the Galactic Railroad is one of those that you know, we were planning on doing at some point, but I just started yeah. thinking, I need to read the book before I can do this anime, and I've yet to get a good translation of Night I on the I believe I actually Railroad. did the Street Fighter like a while ago, so yeah. And, uh, but the first one of these was called Dororo and Hyakumaru by Osamu Tezuka. Pretty much... All of the later series of this would be pretty much entirely based upon European and American classical literature, like uh, Little Woman, Tom Sawyer, and uh, Romeo's Blue Skies. The series became known as the World Masterpiece Theater Series, and several works were actually brought to America. Uh, Tom Sawyer and Little Woman were dubbed into English. I think they got a lot of them got onto like the Christian Television Channel. I need to check that. But anyway, the 10-ton gorilla of this series comes in the form of a 50-pound girl named Heidi of the Alps, which is probably the most well-known of this series, not only in Japan, but around the world. And it was entirely directed and storyboarded by Hayao Miyazaki. I heard of that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's done he's one or two that, other this, things He's got this then. movie that just came out, something about some girl. Yeah, some, something like that. And uh, that is considered one of the greatest animated television series ever made. 
Now, in 1977, Tokyo Movie Shinsha, or TMS, decided to try something of their own in the same vein. So, as a kind of a competitor to the World Masterpiece Theater series, they came out with the series Nobody's Boy Remy, which is based upon the 1878 Hector Malo two-volume novel called, uh, let's butcher French, why don't we, Sans Famille, known as just No Family, or yeah. it's known as in English as uh, Nobody's Boy. Actually, like a few years later, he wrote a book called Nobody's Girl. But anyway. Right. Yeah, well, I think the literal title of the Japanese version is something like The Child Without a Home or The Homeless Child. Yeah, something like that. It, it basically all conveys kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. This series was particularly significant in that it was one of the earlier collaborations of the super team of Osamu Dezaki as director and Akio Sugino as animation director and character designer. We talk about these guys a lot. We're not going to talk about the thing they're doing now, though. Yeah, virtually everything these guys do is awesome. Virtually. Yeah. Yeah. Anything like pre-1994 or so that has got these guys' names on it is amazing. And post-1994, if it's got Blackjack in it and it's them, it's amazing. Anyway, this, of course, wasn't the first time that these two had worked together. They uh, had become very famous for doing Aim for the Ace and Ashton no Joe, which Ashton no Joe, again, was just a giant series of its time. Anyway, TMS put quite a lot of money and work into this, and it became very, very popular. This show, Nobody's Boy Remy, was dubbed into French, Spanish, Italian, and Dutch, at least. So it got all over the world. And again, there, the way these shows were drawn, yeah. you almost wouldn't even know they were anime in the first place, I mean, you were talking about how these shows yes. would show on, like, Christian Broadcasting Network and that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. other than paying attention to the credits, these are you know, very much, you wouldn't really know necessarily that Heidi was a Japanese thing. Part of it was just like, you know, like you said, they're adaptations of these European uh, works of literature. And so I think a lot of it was just made to sort of sell internationally, even though they weren't that concerned with international markets. That is kind of where everybody sort of knows these shows from. Yeah, I mean, Heidi is extremely popular in Germany. My parents actually had these old, like, Super 8s of Heidi, and they didn't even know it was Japanese until I said, hey, Hayao Miyazaki did this. And they work very well around the world, very marketable. The show itself, Nobody's Boy Remy, is set in rural France in the 1800s and is about a very young boy, about eight years old, named Remy, who lives with his mother and their cow, Rosette, and live probably as most people lived in the 1800s in France, and that is, they were dirt poor. In fact, virtually the only thing that this family, like, owns is a house and a cow. And Remy's father, Jerome, I believe is just like a mason, maybe, and is away in Paris trying to get work. He returns home and they find out that he's been horribly injured, and so he can't continue working. And he got injured while on the job because his employers were supposedly kind of stupid, and so he attempts to sue his employer in Paris and hopefully make some money back. And of course, this is the 1800s, and if you're poor, you're not going to win. And so Jerome ends up losing this trial, and apparently this family that had very little money to begin with has even less money now. So the options are to either sell the Rosette, the cow, or to sell Remy, the boy. And being the good mother that she is, Remy's mother, who is known in the series as Mrs. Barbaran, sells Rosette, the cow, and so the family can continue on for a short while. Although it's at this time that Remy discovers something kind of weird with him, in that 
about eight years ago, Jerome, his father, was walking around Paris when he discovered a baby on the doorsteps of this giant mansion. And Jerome had recently found out that he was unable to have a child. So he did what any natural person would do then. He stole the baby <laughs> and ran back to the town of Chavignon. So that's, so Remy basically finds out that uh, his parents are not his real parents. And Jerome knows this, and Jerome takes the next steps to survive, and uh, ends up selling Remy as well. So now they have no cow and no kid. Yes, but they've got a little bit of money to survive. And isn't that what's important? Yes. Yes. Now, Remy ends up being sold to this extremely tall, very kind of big, strong, old man named... Ian McClellan. What? I thought I thought there was some sort of uh, Paul Chapman approved child molestation uh, <laughs> about to occur here. Oh, I'm sure he would see it. But uh, yeah, the the guy is named Signor Vitalis or Vitalis, who happens his to be hair slicked back and very greasy. He's got a hat on all the time, pretty much all the time. So, and what's worst of all is that he is part of the lowest, lowest, lowest rung of society, like. These are the people that are right down there with prostitutes and pornographers. He's a traveling entertainer. And I did not know that the traveling entertainer was like the lowest of the lowest rung in French society. But apparently they are. And uh, Vitalis himself has got a crew that travels around with him. Basically, it's just a monkey named Jolly Coeur and three dogs. Dulce, Zerbino, and the oldest of the dogs, Cappy. Remy is just sold to this man on the spot. And Vitalis just takes him away from his mother and his family and everything. And so now he's got to live this life. And he doesn't even have any choice of it. He just has to learn how to act in plays, how to play the harp, remember lines, how to read. I mean, he can't do any of this. He's, he's a very poor kid in rural France, so he can't really do anything or, or read at all. Remy learns the very harsh reality that he thought that he was poor. No, traveling entertainers are even worse off. So Remy and Vitalis and the animals travel around France, entertaining as many people as they meet and basically surviving from day to day. And this is kind of an unusual show in that that's not what this entire show is about. The entire show is not just Remy wandering around with Vitalis entertaining, but this is kind of the difficulty in a review like this because the show takes many different turns quite a lot. And to explain almost any of these turns is major spoilers. One of the things that comes to mind with a show like this, and Daryl and Clarissa are, are absolutely sick of hearing this. <laughs> I can hear it. But this show is unbelievably, incredibly, horrifically sad. Now, hold on a second. The age rating on the Anime News Network Encyclopedia says there's nothing objectionable about this show. It's fun for the whole family. Well, it's... That for the whole family, if it's fun, it's an interesting family. It has the Justin Savaka seal of approval. Yeah, I guess today, if there's anything sad or depressing, we consider it like adult material, or at least young adult material. But if you read old literature for children, so much of that was so depressing. And just, I don't know why. Maybe it was just to make their real shitty Topping lives seem less shitty. up kids that they weren't wussies who were like, Something bad happened. My parents told me I was going to be special. And how come I didn't get put in a gifted class? I have Asperger's. Give me some free passes. Oh, yeah. Nobody was allowed to be emo back then. Yeah, I, there was I know no Asperger's syndrome yeah. in the yeah. world of Nobody's Boy Remy. I guess part of it is a difference in how we 
feel about teaching kids things. Like, I know there's been some debate in terms of, like, fairy tales and whether it's healthier to expose kids to, like, the old-fashioned fairy tales that are really gonna prepare them for how shitty and terrible the world is, or whether it's healthier to give them the, like, sanitized Disney fairy tales where everything I think cute. the whole oh, reason that we started to like anime in the first place was because we were sick and tired of being fed these yeah. stories about, you know... Believe in yourself and you can do whatever you want when it should actually no, be it's all false. believe in yourself and fucking work for it. And uh, <laughs> then you can maybe do something if you, you know, endure with it. Have you guys read any of the original Grimm's fairy tales? Oh, yeah. They are harsh. Yeah, that, like, I, I'm not actually ugh. sure what the lesson they're trying to teach there at all is. I think it's pretty much just, and don't get uh, eaten. <laughs> Well, I think one of the lessons I learned was if you find a bucket that that has got like your family chopped up into it, if you sew it back together and drain the blood back into their bodies, they might survive. <laughs> so, on a serious so, note yeah. about that subject, there's an interesting book called The Uses of Enchantment by a child psychologist, um, Bruno Bettelheim, that actually talks about original fairy tales and sort of the reasons that they were as harsh as they were and whether like kids learn more from them and it's better from them that way i don't know it's a, it's an interesting book there is no people being chopped up into barrels and remy having <laughs> to sew back the pieces and drain the blood back into vitalis's body and all that stuff but the series itself is is generally characterized by very long periods of just trauma and heartache mm. and despair and just general crappiness for remy is vitalis there anything and remy's in friends in the show that isn't depressing like does anything not depressing ever happen Yes, I, I bet yes. some of those dogs get killed. God damn it, Daryl. You would love that, wouldn't you? Dark Knight, best movie. I guess, you know, from all these long, depressing periods, you have these sort of short moments of just happiness, mm. when just things are going just right for Remy. And as we always know, the worst stuff always happens right when things get better. Yeah. And so, as soon as things get better, they get worse than they were before. I know all about that. Virtually no one in the show can be even around Remy for long without suffering some just terrible hardships in some mm. form. Maybe he's the successor to Hokuto Shinken. <laughs> Maybe he is. <laughs> he's a wanderer. He's, you know, going around. Maybe, you know, the harp, you know, techniques will morph into punching people really fast or whatever. <laughs> so the thing is that... Some of the hardships that occur, sometimes, you know, the characters bring it upon themselves. Sometimes it's just like the characters are just dumb, or someone gets drunk or something. And sometimes it's just the world being just totally shitty to them. I'm just envisioning this situation where they're, like, dancing in, like, some sort of Gene Kelly routine, and they've got, like, umbrellas out, and they're twirling around, and then a lightning bolt... <laughs> crashes down from out of nowhere and, and and murders somebody and then and then it not only kills them but it burns up the umbrella and it starts to rain and the problem is is that you're not entirely off cuz while nobody is dancing it's it's kind of the same idea like oh great things are finally going right oh shit i, I don't want to explain these things cuz they're major spoilers but then you know this thing will happen that is a once in a thousand years sort of event that ruins things. Although that's, you know, a major event that the happens. Resurrection the resurrection of Dio. <laughs> Jesus comes back to life and kicks Remy in the ass or something. I don't know. But Kung Fu Jesus demands retribution, Remy. <laughs> Your ass is mine. Yeah. yeah. At one point in the show, some 
particularly horrible things happen to Vitalis and Remy. And so in order to get his life back together, Vitalis is going to just leave Remy for maybe a month or two with a friend of his in Paris, so where he can go off and patch things up. And unfortunately, the person that Vitalis was almost going to leave the guy with was this guy in Paris who ran a pickpocketing ring with young boys who he whipped and beat on regular occasions when they didn't bring home enough money, and he didn't feed them. And it's like, this is just, you know, one more thing that happens to Remy in his poor life. And again, Paul Chapman is going to see some horrible things on that. Yes, but all antagonists to Paul Chapman are either gay or were molested as children, and most protagonists as well. That is the yes. only motivational thing behind uh, anything in, in Paul Chapman land. <laughs> so much of the uh, show is really set around... I, I, can, I can't really say that it, it harps on it so much, but it's more just like this ever-present element in the show of just poverty. And we've all seen poor people in anime. I mean, there are so many shows out there where it's just, you know, features these characters who are so poor that, you know, they can't eat. Like, uh, it's, it's usually played for laughs, like in, you know, Nia Under 7 or, you know, My Sneak Koku, where they were just kind of really poor in that, or, you know, Vash the Stampede, or, you know, the main guy in Trinity Blood is always counting out his money. It's just like, oh, 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 that's so funny. But I've never seen a show that has just taken such a harsh and realistic portrayal of just total poverty. The show doesn't really get preachy about it. It's more like, this is what it was like in the 1800s in France. It was shitty, mm. and you have to deal with that. It's a harsh reality in the show when Remy and Vitalis are sitting in a hotel room and they're counting out coins, and they're like, okay, we can stay here for three more days before we have to start sleeping on the streets and because we won't have enough money for food. And they do that. And they sleep outside often because they have no more money. And it just gets worse and worse. And then winter moves in. Normally they'd be performing their shows outside. And so just people would give them money from there. But it's winter. Nobody wants to go outside because it's so cold. So they can't make any money. And so they can't uh, stay in a hotel room. And so they have to sleep out in the snow. It's just such a harsh just day-to-day -day struggle. It must be a social engineering attempt so like, okay, kids are going to watch this, and now when they see what happens to Remy's shitty life, they're going to shut up and eat their damn peas. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, maybe. Shut up and eat your uh, damn dinner is the moral of where the wild things are. Also, about the show itself, this show looks absolutely beautiful for a show that was made in 1977. And even then, I don't know really what they did with the materials. I, I don't know if they just, like froze them in carbonite or something for like 20 some years and then unfroze them or something because the materials for the show you'd think that a show like this would have a lot of grain to it and such it just looks beautiful to get an idea of kind of the animation of the show i would suggest bringing up the youtube video of the opening of nobody's boy remy we'll link to it in the show notes it's very interesting because i've never seen any anime that looks like this and one of the things that's very characteristic about the show is the backgrounds are incredibly dynamic. And I've never really seen this in anime before. This must have been, like, the biggest nightmare of, like, any background artist at the time. Because the backgrounds in this move very rapidly all the time. And they're very weird in that normally you'd expect, like, you know, a blue-colored sky or something. But just for the hell of it, they'll suddenly have, like a purple sky, or a red sky, or something like that, just to create atmosphere, and then it'll be clouds in it that are just zooming by. Dazaki and Sugino are always fond of the crazy pastel 
coloring, especially in things like uh, Aim for Ace the Ace, stood honey. out. And, yes. and that sort of... Those pastels are not as evident in Nobody's Boy Remy, but I guess they kind of replace that with just very, very unusual backgrounds. You see some of it in the opening, but it's much more evident in the show itself. The, the opening, I should mention, is much more applicable to the second half of the show than it is to the first half, even though there's only one opening in the entire show. It actually looks like they're having a, a fairly decent time of life. Yes, and that's one of the great jokes. You know, it's one of those things where the opening is, is one way, and the actual show is something totally different. And then the show ends, and then you get this very lighthearted ending with very terrible lyrics. It's really quite a contrast. Is it like Dog Soldier and the Sissy on the Roof? or <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. The show itself, in, in terms of like quality, is... I guess the one way you could describe it is kind of a, a roller coaster ride. One episode or one set of episodes. You'd be watching these episodes and I was just dying to see what the next set of episodes would be. And I, I just had to watch a bunch of episodes at a time. And then I'd get to this other set of episodes that I just couldn't get to for like a week or two because they were so painful to watch. And I don't mean painful in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Japanese version kind of way. I mean painful in just like the emotionally just draining sort of way. And so this is one of those shows where... If you've got the stomach for it, if you think you can sit through a show that has got some very low points and some very high points, I highly recommend it. It was so up and down for me while I was watching it. Mm -hmm. And then the, the ending came, and then for me, the ending was very satisfying. And most things that I could have hoped to have happened, happened in the ending. Nothing was left open. Everything was basically covered. But one of the problems with the show, and... This is a problem with a lot of shows from the World Masterpiece theater series. And, I mean, even Monster, the TV series, had this problem. And that is that the protagonist of the show, Remy, is for all intents and purposes perfect. Remy is really got no negative qualities, really. Maybe the qualities are that they're too trusting. Or maybe he's a bit naive or things like that, but there aren't really negative qualities. He's Yeah, it's like those qualities that they're supposed to be flaws, but they're really only ways to make the character even more cute, or even more endearing. Kind of like when they take a female character and it's like, oh, but she's really yeah. clumsy. That's not really a character flaw, because it really just makes her cuter. It's not as rough in the show, like Clarissa and I have watched uh, Romeo's Blue Skies, Oh, and Romeo's Blue Skies was just, it just had, like, the most perfect people on planet Earth in that show. You were either perfect or a total shitbag. Yeah, there, there was, was nothing no in between. between. And to an extent, that's present in Remy, but it's not nearly as pronounced. I guess it's a little bit more acceptable in that Remy's only eight years old. And yeah. so maybe, you know, he's not yet corrupted and such, but it is pretty evident that Remy really can do... No wrong. Just bad things happen to him. Bad things happen to him all the time. It's not really his fault. Maybe that was actually the point of the show, because if Remy yeah. was a bad kid and bad things happened to him, then the kids would be like, oh, well, that's that's fine. I won't be a bad kid when it's, I guess right. the point of the show is more like life is full of shitty things. Mm -hmm. Deal with it. It's going to happen to you. Just buck up and deal with the bad things that happen in your life, and you'll get through it, and you'll be a better person because of it. And you know what? I like that message. It's a good message, I think. <laughs> yeah. The thing is that if I'd reviewed this show, like, maybe a month ago, when I should have, I could say, you know, go to write stuff and pick this show up. But 
now that's not really possible, because uh, this was one of the three shows that were released by Imagination. And they released them, as we talked about in the intro or in the news, I forgot. But this was done on a burn-per-buy basis. So if you bought one copy, they'd burn one copy, and they'd put it in a box, and they'd send it to you. You're not going to be able to go to Best Buy and pick this up. Yeah. So that makes the show kind of difficult to get. What I hear from Imagination is that they're trying to patch things up, and they're trying to get the show out. Mm-hmm. And I do believe the show is worth watching, even if it's as difficult to watch as it is. It's, it's a pretty long show, but I remember it that it wasn't very expensive either. No, it was probably one of the cheaper uh, per-episode prices for a series. It's 52 episodes or so. I think it turned out to be like 50 bucks for the entire show, which is a very good price, I think. I mean, that's less than a buck an episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought those Imagination ones were like $80. Uh, I believe it was $10 a disc. Okay. And it's $10 a disc whether you buy it individually or all the discs at once. Or it's like forty nine ninety nine or something. Oh. Okay. It's going to be tricky to find it. Like, I guess the only people that... The only time you'd actually see this are people who bought it and are now, you know, we've watched the show and want to sell it. Mm. And in that case, I think it's highly worth picking up because you're probably not going to see the show again. To eBay! Yeah, basically. And be careful. You don't want to, you know, get some awful Hong Kong of this. I'm like, would you watch this with your kids today? I mean, I can't tell because parents are so... Wussies. Uh, I don't know. Parents are such wussies. And they're crazy. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, yeah. you can't show kids anything that you watched when you were a kid yourself because it'll ruin the world. And you can't let kids do anything anymore. You know, my sister would not show my nephew all of Finding Nemo because it was too scary. too scary when the big scary (laughs) fish is on the screen swimming away from the scary fish. You can't show him Tom Sawyer because you know what? Tom Sawyer was autistic. (laughs) She wouldn't show him all of uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Because the Totoro growling and screaming, screaming. was what? too scary. That is kind of scary, though. <laughs> Nightmare fuel. You'll eat your soul. Uh, maybe. But your soul will be better for it. Now, so, Nobody's Boy Remy. I, I kind of wish I'd done this review sooner so more people would have been maybe tempted to pick it up. I don't know if I really sold the show because I don't want to give you guys the impression out there that, you know, this is some sort of happy, sweet little show. It is harsh from episode one till episode 52. And the lighter moments in it make the rest of the show that much better. But I'm glad that I watched it. And uh, I think if you get the chance to, you should uh, watch it too. As far as depression goes, how does this stack up with Now and Then Here and There? Oh, God. Now and Then Here and There, the, the difference, I feel, is that Now and Then Here and There, the depressing parts of it frustrated me a lot. I got really angry because I feel like they could have done something about like that, that really shitty guy in it, the... You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. The mustache guy. Like, they could have done something about this guy, and nothing ever happened to this guy until right at the very, very end, and it was not very satisfying what happened to him. And there's not that same level of frustration in this show, because I guess the world that Remy's in, shitty things are happening to everybody all the time. It's just a shitty life. You're poor in the 1800s. What else can you expect? So... I guess on that level, it's not nearly as depressing, although things do happen to characters. People do die very unexpectedly, and I'm not going to say who, because it was really surprising to me when these people died. Remy dies in episode four. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Remy dies, raped to death by the cow. It's really surprising. And then the narrator's an asshole. It's like, poor Remy. (laughs) 
raped to death by a cow. He never saw that one coming. Not even for a second. Oh, well. Better luck next life. The narrator in this show is an asshole. He kind of is to a degree, and it's, yeah, it's... Man. He's an asshole as well in that he makes you think one thing. And he's like, well, you know, he's the narrator. He should know everything, right? And then something else happens. And then that's even more surprising. So the narrator's an asshole on multiple levels. So, yeah, nobody's boy Remy. I'm really glad that they brought this out here. And it's kind of unfortunate that more people can't see it. But uh, if you can, do check it out. As mentioned in the previous segment that we released, I'm going to be talking about something that's very, uh, special. Awesomely special. Because you've been naughty. There's a lot of talk about American movies get made of Japanese properties. Sometimes it's remakes of Asian horror movies. Sometimes it's live-action anime adaptations, like the upcoming Dragon Ball movie. You know, people like to talk about how America can't handle much superior Japanese animation or, or Asian horror movies, and we always fuck it up. Well... What people don't always remember is that Japan is just as bad in this regard. And there are good examples of this, but the best might possibly be the two anime OAVs that were made of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Or, as it's just called, Mutant Turtles, the Superman legend. 
I think everybody probably knows about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's a pretty long-standing, popular thing here in America. There's been a ton of toys, a ton of comics, a ton of different animated adaptations. We've had some live-action movies that came out a while back, and then uh, didn't they also do that like 3D animated movie a while ago? Yes, the or did that yeah, ever come Imagi. out? It did that come did out. Come out. In the theater. I, my roommate thinks it's the best, best movie ever made. Oh, I never you saw it. You want to have sex so. with Raphael yeah. as a kid and also not as a kid. <laughs> you mean okay. Raphael as a kid or when she was a kid? Take your pick. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I should just call her down and ask, and ask her to ver- clarify this, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, you should. It would be really good. Has she seen this? I right. don't believe she has. I can call her down. Guess what you're watching again tomorrow. Oh no! Yes. Oh, Our Friday meetings are going to be made so much God. better now. Oh man, this is going to be like when I had to watch Itsudate My Santa like three times. Oh and I wanted man, to kill myself. that was horrible. Oh. That was horrible. Unlike this, which is horribly awesome. But yes. <laughs> so, so what is it about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that prompted Japan to say, "Yeah, let's do this well, shit"? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is kind of a a weird franchise to begin with, because I think what some people might or might not know is that it started originally as a parody comic book to make fun of some of the popular comic books of the time. I believe some of it was poking fun at New Mutants, but the big one was that it was a parody of Daredevil. Daredevil got his powers and went blind because of an incident with a truck crashing that spilled chemicals and the same accident, some of the stuff got into the sewers and these turtles were turned into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And there were other things like there's a a mysterious clan in Daredevil called the Hand. Well, so Ninja Turtles, you have the Foot Clan. You know, Daredevil was taught martial arts by a guy called Stick. So the Ninja Turtles were taught martial arts by a, a rat named Splinter. But somehow, along the way, it kind of spiraled out and became this sort of massive thing, which ended up being totally unconnected to any of the stuff it was supposed to be parodying, and most people, I think, forgot that it was even ever intended to be a parody. So when it made the transition over into Japan, I'm sure that got lost even farther, and... (laughs) As we can see with uh, the live-action Spider-Man tokusatsu show, Japan has a tendency to take American heroes and kind of repurpose them and give them new sort of accoutrements and such that keep them more in line with how Japan tends to do superheroes. So Spider-Man got a giant robot. I wonder what would happen if the Powerpuff Girls were Yeah, I would hate to oh, see wait. that happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would be you terrible. You can find out. It? They got turned into lowly magical girls, and it was kind of <laughs> weird, but very cute. Hmm. So it's kind of hard to find information about these OAVs because there was only two of them. They were made in 1996. Nobody wants to admit they watched them. Yeah, I don't think they ever got officially released over here. And so not a lot of people are aware of it, I don't think. And so there's not a ton of information. But the little bit that I've been able to glean from the internet is that apparently there were some toy lines. I'm assuming they were Japanese exclusive because they don't seem familiar. I'm not sure that I've seen them listed in any of the American TMNT toy lines, but uh, apparently they released a line of toys, uh, the TMNT Super Mutants toys. Later on, they released another line of toys called the Metal Mutants toys, which was sort of a Saint Seiya-esque thing. 
So these two OAVs were basically made kind of as advertisements for these toy lines. And so the turtles were kind of changed to match whatever they did with these toys. In which case, uh, for the first one, apparently it wasn't enough that they were mutant turtles and also ninjas. That just wouldn't do. <laughs> they had to get superpowers. Enter the first episode of the Ninja Turtles Superman Legend OAV with opening song by Hironobu Kagi. Mark of quality. Awesome. Yes. Except somehow it's a terrible song. I don't know. It's like how the Go Lion themes were done by, like, Ichiro Mizuki, and they kind of suck. I don't know how it happened, but it did. There are some ads, if you get this anime, that they put in for, like, the toys, and there's also an ad that references a, a manga. I don't know if this is just a translation of the English comic books, or if it has anything to do with these OAVs, but the beginning of this OAV episode opens with what seems like a flashback or a recap of... Something that came before. But I don't think there was anything that came before. I think they just did this info dump to try and make up a bullshit reason why things are happening the way they happen in this OAV. I think that it was done in order to, you know, maybe people would watch that and then they'd know immediately whether or not they wanted to sit for another 30 minutes <laughs> and have their lives irrevocably made better or worse or both it, it so. could be because it does a pretty good job of summing up all of the weird things that happen in this oav that are very strange as somebody who has an existing familiarity with the ninja turtles from when you're you know a kid so the backstory that they give is this i'm just gonna tell you everything that they go through because seriously i don't think anybody's gonna care about spoilers for this <laughs> And it's it's pretty good. So yeah, it's, it's the opening of it, so it's not exactly spoiled. Yeah, really. It's it's, it's the first up. like minute or so. So the Ninja Turtles are summoned to an underground kingdom by a fairy named Chris Mew. With giant tits, by the way. Yes, that's important, I guess, because you know kids important. care you gotta, about. You got to know breasts. that your five-year-old is getting a boner when when he's five years old. So. <laughs> I guess maybe it's one of those things for, like, the parents. I don't know. Kind of like the hot guys in Sentai shows. Comrade or Kabuto, so the father's like, Son, I need to go into the bathroom for 20 minutes. Don't bother your your father. Or, <laughs> I think you mean mother? But, uh, I don't know. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean for, for Teenage Mutant Ninja oh, Turtles. I meant oh, for Kamen right, Rider. Right. Kabuto, and I was like, um, maybe? No, Kabuto, that would be, be an interesting father. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, summoned to an underground kingdom by a fairy named Chris Mew. They are gifted with these magical jewels called the Muta Stones that let them do a transformation called Super Mutation, at which point they turn from mutant ninja turtles <laughs> to sort of more apparently Powerful. badass humanoid turtles. But they can only change for three minutes. That's it. It's like Ultraman. Three minutes. Exactly. By the way, they look really dumb. In this form. Like, instead of having the weird blobby turtle faces, they just have regular people faces, and they're, like, taller, and they're buff, and they have these weird kind of pseudo-wolverine-looking masks. It's almost like there was, like, some tokusatsu show that had characters sort of like this, and they were, but the episodes never got made. So they just so they merged like, it together. Yeah, they were like, well, we gotta sell these toys, and yeah. so It would have been far it. better if the Muda Stone had just given them really shiny leather pants and giving them face paint 
and then made them spit green mist at the Shredder, who is in this, along with Rocksteady yes. and Bebop. Yeah, I was about yes. to say, it's all the same characters, except for the addition of, like, the fairies, like Chris Mew and, and some other stuff in the second episode. It's the same turtles, they all have the same names, they all have the same colors, there's Splinter, April O'Neil is there. She is the only one that is pretty much exactly the same as the original. She's a cute girl, and she's a reporter. It's really weird because everybody looks exactly like they do in the American cartoon, yeah. except for Chris Mew, who looks just yeah. totally like she was animated in Japan. Which and except was. for once they transform. Once they transform, yeah. it totally you can tell, like, this is Japan turning N Ninja Turtles into a stereotypical Japanese Sentai series. But, but even um, before that, there was a whole so lot of wacky further. hijinks going on. Of like, yeah. this is what well, American cartoons are. I guess in Japan, are. they're like, eh, ninjas, whatever. They're just ninjas. That's not cool. We, have we need to make them the awesome. Can't go anywhere yeah, yeah. in Akihabara without tripping over ten ninjas. We right. don't even have yeah. the so, common courtesy to say sorry because <laughs> they're all silent and shit. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, of course, and all, so. as you, you probably know, if you've ever seen any Sentai shows, it's also vitally important. The Ninja Turtles do not have a giant robot. So what happens is they have a secondary power-up, the Saint Mutation, where all of the turtles merge into one super turtle, which also yeah. looks really dumb. It has wings. Metal wings. Well, at least it didn't have feathery wings like a certain Gundam Wing Zero custom. Gundam. <laughs> And what's even better is that it's got multiple arms, and when it speaks, they all actors have to speak at once. Yes, it's yes. like fusion in Dragon <laughs> Ball Z. So much fun. Yeah, I, I should note it's also vitally important that all of the the villains that are again the same: Shredder, Krang, Rocksteady, and Bebop have dark muta stones that let them also transform. <laughs> so like Shredder transforms into Devil Shredder. Oh, not Super Shredder is seen in the second film. <laughs> As played by Kevin Nash. No. It looks really dumb, I remember, as well. Like, yeah, well, it's kind dumb. of the same thing. Like, they just kind of get bigger, and they get a lot more buff, and then they get kind of, like, extreme-looking. And that's pretty much it. So, all of this is just kind of a giant info dump at the opening of the show. Like, yeah, you remember when this happened, right? It never actually did, but just pretend like you do. So then we go into the, the regular series, which apparently does take place still in New York. Not that you could tell, because everybody still acts very Japanese. Like, all the characters use Japanese honorifics, and they have cute Japanese nicknames. You know, like, Donatello is Donachan! And, uh, Krang keeps calling Shredder Sawaki-chan! I don't know where that comes from. Sawaki? Yeah, and Shredder gets really angry. He's like, don't call me that. So the evil plot this time around is that Krang and the others are trying to awaken the evil dark fairy, Dark Mew. They're very good at naming. I, I can't really complain about this too much because it is kind of in keeping with the original Ninja Turtles cartoon, which, as I said, I mean, Ninja Turtles began life as a parody, and, you know, the cartoons were kids' shows. I don't think so they knew they were making a parody. Well, not not this one. I mean, like, the original comics and everything. But Ninja Turtles has always been silly. So I can't really fault the Japanese show for being kind of silly and cartoony. But the way that they do it is very 
obvious, and it's not really exceptionally well done. There's a lot of scenes in the opening and throughout the different fight scenes during the series of like, the villains or whoever making really cartoony, like, big eye, oh no, faces, or doing sweat drops and falling over. And there's a lot of really weird jokes, like Krang is going on about how they're going to awaken Dark Mew, the fairy, and they're going to destroy the Earth. Ha ha ha! And Shredder is like, I, I don't really care so much about destroying the planet. I'm, I'm down with that, but where are we going to live? And Krang is like, we'll live in Dimension X! And Shredder is like, oh no, not Dimension X! And they look really surprised and sweat drops. And it's very silly. Awkward. Yeah, it's not so much that, oh, Ninja Turtles being silly, how dare you take such serious business and make fun of it. It's more just that it, it all feels kind of awkward, and I don't know if it's a case of it was really this way back when I was a kid and I just didn't know any better, but now I'm watching this and I'm, you know, an adult and so it seems really dumb. Like, maybe if I watched this when I was eight, I would have thought it was the coolest thing that ever existed. I don't know, but for me, like, it feels kind of awkward and forced, but, um... And of course, as in all Sentai series, nobody can do anything worthwhile until they transform. So despite the fact that the Ninja Turtles are ninjas, they, they don't actually do anything. Like, they still have ninja weapons, and they still dress the same way, but they don't do anything normally as ninjas. They just transform immediately. I guess so they can look like the toys, so that they can market them to kids, but... You know, the the turtles are informed of the evil plot by Chris Mew, and they go to stop it. So people, everyone transforms. The bad guys kind of suck at transforming and complain about it. Luckily enough for the turtles, I guess, although probably not because they probably wouldn't have been a challenge anyway, all of the foot soldiers are on vacation. How convenient. Yeah. So, um, their big fight ensues, and of course, as in every other Japanese show involving superpowers, everybody has complex over-the-top attack phrases that they scream really loudly every time that they're trying to do their attack. So it's like, hit you with sigh. <laughs> yeah, well, they all have superpowers now. So they all have just really weird attack names, and I thought I had written them down, but apparently I do not see them. It's also kind of weird, I mentioned the stuff like the honorifics and, and all these other kind of very Japanese things, and it's kind of odd when you're so used to the Ninja Turtles as an American series, like, seeing this. In the original Ninja Turtles, there was always this thing where they would eat really weird types of pizza. But Japan kind of already makes really bizarre pizzas. I don't know if everybody listening to this is familiar with the travesty that is Japanese pizza. Not to be confused with okonomiyaki. I really want to try that pizza that's the shrimp and mayonnaise. Yeah. All spread out. Yeah, and shrimp and mayonnaise up. pizza. And that's not a weird exception. That's that's what Japanese pizza apparently is like all the time. So there's not a lot of a joke anymore when Japan already eats bizarre pizzas. So like the Ninja Turtles, instead of eating really weird things, and I thought, okay, maybe they'll be funny and they'll have the turtles eat regular American style pizza. And Japanese people think, oh, that's really weird. Why would you eat pizza like that? But no, they just kind of eat Japanese pizza like squid ink pizza. I'm assuming that's probably an actual Japanese yeah, pizza. I mean, it sounds disgusting. It's sure they have that for like ice cream and also pizza topping. And this applies to any pizza yeah. topping, also doubles as ice cream. So, like, pepperoni, ice right. cream, whatever. Yes. Raw horse ice cream, yep. which does exist. Raw horse meat ice cream. Oh, God. I want to try to taste that pizza. Oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, before I throw up. So, <laughs> 
Long story short, once again, after the the one silly fight scene, the turtles and everybody give chase, but it's too late. Dark Mew is already awake, and natural disasters are happening all over the world. There's earthquakes and twisters everywhere, at which point we see a lot of random scenes to demonstrate how terrible things are happening all over the world. For some reason, we see a scene of the Miami wetlands, and there are frogs that talk, and there's a tornado that passes by. And then we see the foot soldiers partying in Hawaii, and they get sucked up by a tornado and do the Team Rocket blasting off again thing, where they fly off into the distance and turn into a little speck. Conveniently, because of all this, a a huge tidal wave breaks up the battle that's going on, and uh, everything gets really flooded, and the turtles and everybody are sort of floating around. Dark Mew, by the way, is kind of slutty looking. She has this weird red mini dress. Yes, she is. Yeah, the turtles remark that she's such a cute devil. Oh, She's got even bigger tits, I seem to remember. So, as I mentioned, there's still a whole other transformation that we have to get to in order to sell that toy. So, Shredder transforms once again, this time into Dark Devil Shredder. And he looks like a big giant dragon thing. And he shoots like big balls of dark energy. It actually looks like it probably would have been kind of a neat toy. <laughs> but um, luckily for the turtles, who don't seem to be able to do very much against this, part of a building gets sliced off and tips over and falls onto Giant Shredder's head, at which point he passes out. Oh, I thought he would just walk straight through the building and cut the building in half. No. But I guess he's not that kind of a hero. Nope. No. But uh, so now that Shredder is out of the way, they've still got Dark Mew to deal with. And Dark Mew's whole shtick is that she's just going to blow up the world. So she flies out into space and gets ready to destroy the planet. Oh no, she's in space now. I mean, what are they going to do? The Ninja Turtles, I mean, you know, okay, sure, they have superpowers now, but they're not astronauts. Except apparently, if they all combine into the Saint Mutation, they can fly. And they can fly into space. But they can only stay in saint mode for 100 seconds. By the way, the 100 seconds can also be 5 or 10 minutes, depending on if the show needs it. How did the ninjas figure this out? Like, oh, the ninja technique of flying into space for only 100 seconds. (laughs) Look, it's no different than the ninja technique of bazooka. Ninja technique of grenade launcher. Because it's just these... (laughs) <laughs> it's just these magic stones that they got given that let them do this. It has, it has nothing whatsoever to do with them being ninjas. So I mentioned some of the weird, random gags, like the, the frogs in Miami. Well, there's another kind of random, ongoing joke about some guy that's losing his glasses. And I guess the dude is an astronaut. There's a shuttle up in space. And Dark Mew, like, harasses the people on the space shuttle. They're like, we've had enough of this. And they go to run away. And so the turtles show up to, to ruin Dark Mew's party. And um, as they're transformed, Gerald mentioned that uh, you can hear the voices of all the turtles as they talk. And apparently the, the transformation works a little bit like a giant robot. They all have to concentrate and work together to move the combined body. And they really suck at it. So a whole bunch of time gets wasted with them like, one leg is trying to go this way, and the and the arm on the other side is trying to go the opposite direction, and, you know, oh no, we can't figure out what we're doing. And yeah, they kill an excessive amount of time. Doing and this. their 100 seconds just runs out right then and there. If only, but luckily... That's why I said the 100 seconds can be 5 minutes if if the time requires it, so... Yeah, it's, it's like Dragon Ball Z time, like when they're fighting Frieza. The planet's gonna explode in 3 minutes, but that can be like 30 episodes if we need it to be. Exactly. So, 
while the turtles are dicking around not being good at their transformation, Chris Mew pulls a Goku and decides to fly up behind Dark Mew and grab onto her and hold her still so that fire the turtle can take her out. Yes, yes, oh, and, indeed. And they, she grabs her and there is an out-of-the-blue, lovingly animated breast bounce out of nowhere. Just... Yes. For some reason, the animator got really bored, and in space, your breasts can bounce. Yeah, even no more one than can hear will. them. Like, even so. the animator was like, "God, this show is so terrible. <laughs> At least I can draw some titties." Yeah. So yes, Chris Mew manages to hold Dark Mew still, which is the only thing that allows the turtles to get their shit together for long enough. But of course, first they have to waste another like minute or two being like, "No, Chris Mew, we don't want to hurt you. If we shoot her, it'll kill you as well, and you're our friend." And she's like, "But you have to do it, turtles." And yes, on and on. And then the voice of Splinter comes to the turtles and is like, "Turtles, you have to do it." Use your mega final saint blade, and you can defeat her, and the world will be saved. I had tears in my eyes. This was a moving moment. Yeah, it's... It was just like that time in Dragon Ball, when Piccolo had to fire his special beam cannon, and Goku was gonna die, and we were all depressed. It was like that time in in Grave of the Fireflies, where I watched the entire movie. (laughs) Yes, just like Grave of the Fireflies. And then, as a result of them saving the world, they end up accidentally causing lightning to come down and strike that umbrella that nobody's boy Ren was dancing <laughs> underneath just moments ago. The lightning went back in yes, time. Yes, like the bullet <laughs> that Darkseid used to kill that dude. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's, it's very depressing, but the turtles must finally use their mega final saint blade, at which point both Dark Mew and Chris Mew are re-imprisoned in the crystals that they came from, which I suppose means that Somebody could wake them up again? I don't know. the sequel? Aww. Except the sequel has nothing to do with any of this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the hundred seconds finally runs out now that it's convenient to the plot. I don't know, they've detransformed in the middle of space and they're gonna die from explosive decompression. Except, hey, remember that shuttle from before? Luckily it showed up and it picked them up so they don't all die. The world is saved. And the turtles remark that although Chris Mew's body was tiny, her bravery was enormous. Cue the end credits. As were her titties. And then, yes, that wasn't enough. That one episode, I mean, that final scene was so moving that they just had to keep going. Except, you know, maybe nobody did care about the fairies, because the second episode has nothing to do with anything from the first episode, except for the Mutastones. That's carried over, and all the same characters are there, except the fairies. So now they have to promote the Metal Turtles toys, which, as I mentioned, are sort of a... The first OAV was like a a Sentai series. Well, this is the Saint Seiya Armored Heroes rip-off line of toys, which they have to set up. So the bad guys have determined that there are new Mutastones located, of course, in Japan. And Krang decides that they're going to go to Japan to get these new Mutastones because it will make them even more powerful and they can take over the world. Shredder is not really a fan of this plan because he doesn't really like transforming, but Krang's laugh is really, really annoying, which was true of the original Ninja Turtles. And so basically, Krang threatens to keep laughing continuously until Shredder agrees to do what he says, which doesn't (laughs) take very long. So yes, off to Japan. Conveniently enough, the Ninja Turtles are also on their way to Japan because Splinter's old friend, Hattori Kinzo, from the Shinobi Village, has asked for his help. 
So they're all traveling to Japan, during which they all take regular public transportation. Like, they fly on planes, and then they take, you know, the Shinkansen. And at no point, apparently, does anybody think that it is bizarre for a group of humanoid mutant talking turtles and a humanoid mutant talking rat to be walking around and traveling internationally. So theoretically, they also have passports. But yeah, at no point does this cause a problem. So yes, there's some random fight scenes like, oh, they're on the train heading to this remote area where the ninja village is located and Shredder and, and the other bad guys teleport to right in front of the train and there's a brief fight scene and suddenly ninjas appear, but not, you know, Ninja Turtles, just regular ninjas. They get rid of Shredder and the other guys. And it's Splinter's friend, Hattori Kinzo, and uh, they've showed up to help escort them to the hidden ninja village. At which point they reveal that someone is trying to steal their legendary mirror that has been passed down in their village for ages. Which, of course, the reason is that it contains the new Mutastones. By the way, Hattori has a really annoying voice. And also, all the regular ninjas are kind of useless. Because remember, being a ninja is not cool. This is why the Ninja Turtles had to have superpowers. So, all of these guys are ninjas, but they totally suck. So, as another example of just kind of the weird, random things that they do in the show, that I guess are supposed to be funny, but they don't really work. There's a lot of that in this show, right? Yeah. While they're in the ninja village, an evil ghost appears. The ninjas explain that this is Yukimura, a vengeful ghost of fear that was imprisoned by their ancestor, Hattori Hanzo. Apparently this ghost just hangs around, and it decides, I guess to cause trouble, by helping Shredder and the other bad guys find the hidden ninja village. They try and steal the mirror, blah blah blah. Hattori Kinzo releases a ninja trap. The ninja trap explodes the house that everyone was in. Except, apparently there was a giant super fortress underneath the cottage that rises up into the air. During this whole time, the evil ghost just is there, and it just laughs and points to where the mirror is. That's all it does. Well, that's all ghosts need to do. It doesn't do anything else. It serves no other purpose except to laugh and point at the mirror so that Shredder and everyone else knows exactly where it is. So, the mirror now is on top of the super fortress, so everyone has to climb all the way up the fortress to get it. So the ninjas and the the turtles start scaling the walls, and they get a ways up, at which point Leonardo, who I guess is the only one of the turtles that has a brain, points out that maybe they should be taking the stairs. Was that meant to be a joke, or was I, that meant to be just, like... I think it was up, meant like to be a joke, because it's oh. like, Hattori has like, Oh, ha ha ha, I meant to do that, I'm not really a dumbass. It's just not really yeah. funny. So they split up, and the regular ninjas keep climbing up the side, and the Ninja Turtles go in and take the stairs. So everybody finally gets up to the roof, and uh, Shredder and the others are about to take the mirror. So Hattori and the other ninjas pull out a whole bunch of fake replicas of the mirror that they happen to carry on them, I guess, at all times. And they throw them all up into the air, and they all fall down. So ha! Now, Shredder and the gang can't tell which is the real mirror, except the ghost is Pointing at it. Pointing at the real mirror. And also, (laughs) the ninjas now can't tell which is the real mirror either, because it's not like they bothered to grab it before they did this. They just scattered all these things around. Ninjas don't need to plan. They improvise like the marines. So because of the ghost, this plan doesn't really matter anyway. Shredder 
still gets the mirror, and um, several of the mutastones in it glow, and finally, the whole purpose of this OAV, the armor for the toys that they need to sell, appears. And it's very Saint Seiya-esque. The armor is all in the shape of different animals, and then there's a transformation sequence where it breaks apart, and then the armor appears on the person. So now we have Metal Bebop, who is like the fish or killer whale, and Metal Rocksteady, who I think is a dragon, and Metal Shredder, who's a wolf. And Hattori is like, in order to fight them, we can summon the beasts of hope! We'll distract them and kill enough time for you guys to summon the Beasts of Hope. So, I guess what is theoretically supposed to be an epic battle commences, except really it's just kind of boring, like, oh, now the bad guys have different superpowers than they did the last time. Like, I summon illusionary snake tentacles. Ha ha ha. Eventually the turtles are able to summon their own armors, and the turtles perform the Mutadocking transformation. Is it symmetrical? Really dirty. <laughs> no. <laughs> and now we have Metal Leonardo, who I think is also a dragon, and Metal Raphael, who is like a phoenix or something, and Metal Donatello, who's something that looks like it could be a bear-dragon hybrid. Oh, bear-dragon. That's like that's the scariest beast ever conceived. <laughs> Combination. Bear-dragon. Yep, Donatello got the best, and uh, especially because Metal Michelangelo is just like a crab. Oh, gee, well... He's the party animal, party so therefore dude. he yep. has crabs. Party so. dudes all get crabs. That's a good point. Yep. There we go. It makes perfect sense. So once again, all of the transformations have a time limit. Now it's six minutes. Which could also be, I guess, 15 minutes, if the time yeah. requires it. By the way, the evil ghost is still there, just laughing. He doesn't need to point <laughs> at anything now. He's just there laughing. The show should have had, like, a picture-in-picture picture of just the ghost just laughing all the time. Just, <laughs> just constantly. That might have been really funny, but as it is, it's just kind of weird. So the battle commences, and the battle, just like the ones in the previous episode, is really goofy. Like, everyone's firing off super attacks, and then there's a lot of running around, and the enemy, oh, they get hit with an attack, and they make really goofy faces, like, oh no, and then the ninja or the turtles or whoever laughs at, at Shredder and them like, oh, ha, 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 you guys are so dumb. And that's it. That's like this whole fight. Until eventually, because Shredder and the others transformed earlier than the turtles did, they run out of time and their armor all pops off. And they take the armor stones and ditch the mirror and run away. At which point the ghost is still laughing, but he finally disappears. And even the turtles are like, why was that dude here? Nobody in the show even knows why that ghost was there. Except to point at this mirror that, uh... <laughs> oh well. And laugh at everyone, and then he just goes away. It's completely anticlimactic. The transformations on the enemies run out, so they just run away. And then the ghost just, like, disappears without really doing anything. The only thing that really happens is that the whole, like, super fortress that they've been fighting on top of collapses. Because apparently ninjas are too stupid to build things properly. This is actually pretty much the reason given. Hattori's just like, oh, it's really flimsy. Sorry. Ninjas are retards. And then everyone laughs. And that's the end of the episode. The end. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that is the Ninja Turtles OAVs. 
So now you don't have to watch them because you know everything that happens. I hope that people were as emotionally affected by this as they were by our Macross Do You Remember Love review. Because I know I was. <laughs> it brought back such great memories of, of watching the show. Yeah. I don't know. This is just a very bizarre anime. It's so strange, like, that it even exists. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if Ninja Turtles was really popular in Japan. I mean, I'm assuming, okay, clearly they made toys for it that they needed to market. So maybe it did well. In which case, I guess it would make sense. But there's just not really a lot of information about this. I mean, in the credits, it does list, I think, some of the companies that worked on the original Ninja Turtles stuff. So I don't know how much involvement the American Ninja Turtles rights holders had in this. I don't know if it's just like their name is on it because it's their original property and they signed it off or what. But I guess it's kind of interesting to check out just as a curiosity. I don't really find it bad in the way that's really entertaining. Like, it's not, like, Crystal Triangle or Dog Soldier level. I found that if you take just certain short clips from the 50 or so minutes that the whole thing ends up being, then those short clips are entertaining. Right. But as a whole, it's it pretty is. torturous. It's, it just kind of drags. There's so many scenes that are just not really entertaining at all. Most of the entertainment you can get is from showing them the first info dump, and that's about all you need to show. Yeah, that really does contain a lot of the stuff that is weird about the show. I'm sure people are going to go watch this anyway. Like I said, I don't think it was ever officially released over here, but, you know, you can find it on the internet. It's, it's always rough because when something is trying to be funny and it is not funny... It's always so much more Then painful. it's like the most torturous thing, rather than like if it's trying to be dramatic and ends up being funny. Yeah, then, it be, then it's funny, but yeah, funny that's not funny is just... You can't even make fun of it. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, it's not like Ninja Turtles didn't have some kind of dumb or lame humor, but it's like they didn't even preserve any of that. So, yeah... I don't know if there, I don't think there's anything else to say about this. Yeah, you really you really have to go out of your way to track this down because you can't yeah. buy it or anything. I mean, it's out there to download it, but I'm pretty sure it's not even put on like DVD in Japan. So yeah, it's a weird oddity that someone preserved and put and fan subbed and put online. Right. I suppose in the end, this review is much like the actual Ninja Turtles OAV. It wasn't actually as funny as we hoped, and um, it's very anticlimactic at the end. Now I'm just depressed. I want to go watch Remy now. <laughs> Make you feel Cheer better? Cheer myself back up. Yeah. Hello, Daryl, Gerald, and Clarissa. This is a TJ from Illinois calling, your loyal listener and also blog commenter. As I'm recording this, you guys are probably out all enjoying yourselves at Oticon, you goddamn bastard sons of bitches being able to get press credentials and having enough money to go to multiple cons a year. Anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, what I wanted to say is that recently I just downloaded uh, Kaiji, and I watched the first couple episodes, and I have to say, awesome stuff. Thank you so much for the recommendation. I'm downloading Akigi right now, as a matter of fact, and hopefully that will be just as good, if not better. I have very high hopes. I wanted to thank you for that. Actually, most of the stuff that I've downloaded or bought within the past year or so have been things that you've either reviewed on the show, talked about on the show, or just mentioned on the show. So thank you for continuing to be influencing what I buy and download. Without you guys, I never would have discovered such anime gems such as uh, They Were Eleven or 
Root Search. Yeah, I downloaded Root Search. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That's like 45 minutes I can never get back. God damn it. Fuck you. And, oh, Clarissa, one more thing. I got one of my friends into Blackjack recently. As per my recommendation, I told them to check out the Central Park Media box sets and to download the first TV series, and he says he really likes it. So, yeah, I just thought you'd be interested to know that I got one of my friends into Blackjack. Hopefully the vertical release of the manga will do well. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Okay, so after what, a year and a half of saying that, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it soon, I get around to it. All right, we're finally getting around to it, for real this time. This is the much-awaited episode of Anime World Order in which I review part three of the grand manga epic that is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. It has been so long since we last talked about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. <laughs> Does remember? Maybe some of you don't remember what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is about. I have no idea what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is actually about. All I know, it is by a terrifying man by the yes. name of Hirohiko Araki. Who is a vampire. Who does covers for science magazines. Yes. <laughs> he's uh, very famous for drawing a beautiful rendition of... An amoeba? <laughs> I really want to get a copy of that journal. Which is like all of his other artworks, so it... Works yeah, perfectly fine. Personally, I have a, a storied history with part three of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, otherwise known as the part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure that everybody knows about who even knows what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is. Right. Hirohiko Araki, other than JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, he released a wonderful manga that was adapted into an anime that we shall undoubtedly review eventually. I didn't review it yet because I was trying to allow Dave and Joel the courtesy to do it first, <laughs> but they have not taken that bait. I am, of course, speaking of Bao, hmm. greatest 45-minute OAV that Anime Ego ever released outside of Riding Bean. Didn't you have these same hopes for when they did Mad Bull? Uh, yes. Oh, uh, well, prepare for disappointment. You know, I want to know why they never animated Gorgeous Irene. I want to see that animated. That looks awesome. I have no idea why more of Araki's stuff doesn't get made, but really, JoJo's is all he really needs to care about. Is his artwork maybe too complicated or something? His artwork is a, a multi-changing, faceted yeah. jewel. I want my Part 5 or alternately Steel Ball Run series now, Japan. See, here's the thing Six about JoJo's. It's probably the second longest manga, like, ever, yeah. as far as just volumes and time it's been running. It is, like, the second longest Shonen Jump title. I think the only longer one is Kochikame. Yeah. That's just an abbreviation for the full name. The full Which name is, is really, incredible. really long. But it's about that police officer who is not John Sleepy Estes, and therefore I'm not <laughs> nearly as interested. It's up to, like, 80-something volumes. The thing about JoJo is we've split it up into parts because they may as well be completely different manga. Well, each part has its own title. Yeah, each part has its own title. This one is called something like um, the Stardust, Stardust Crusaders. Crusaders. Yeah, okay. Stardust Crusaders, how fabulous. Not as good as Stardust Memory, but <laughs> hey, I have got a burning love as well. How many David Bowie albums had Stardust in them? Neil Gaiman movies have Stardust <laughs> in them. So, like, 
Even though it's considered multiple parts, the ties between each part is tenuous at best. There's maybe one or two characters that carry over. They're separated by many years for the most part. Artistic styles even can vary wildly between parts of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. But part three, I mentioned this is the one that is by far and away the most famous, mainly because... It had a fighting game made for it that a lot of people played. Mm -hmm. It was popular before the fighting game came out, and I would say it was even popular before the anime came out. But I think a lot of people got introduced to it from that fighting game, didn't they? My storied history with this OAV began many, many years ago, back when I was initially getting into anime, when I was still fairly young, maybe 17, 18 or so, the mid-90s, late-90s we're talking about. This part that I'm going to talk about here was made into an anime, and until very recently, this was the only part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure that had been made right. into anime. Mm -hmm. There's very recently been a movie released for the first part of JoJo's, which I've still not seen. I haven't either, because you can't find it. <laughs> yeah. These OAVs came out in the 90s, and the people who made it are a very talented bunch from the voice cast, which is pretty stellar. To the production team, we've talked about in previous episodes of the show, Hiroyuki Kitakubo, who directed this. He is also known for working on Robot Carnival and the greatest anime ever made, Angel Cop. Another guy nobody ever heard of who worked on this anime is a dude named Satoshi Khan. Maybe I talked about him once or twice. He was not a director or anything on this one since this was the very early 90s. Of course, when I first saw this, I had no idea who any of these people were. I just knew that... These OAVs came out, and these OAVs were then fan-subbed, and by fan-subbed, I mean bootlegged. On those crappy VHS bootleg fan-subs with the horrible white borderless subtitles from the bootlegger guy who named himself after Black Adder characters, or absolutely fabulous characters. That's how I first heard anything JoJo's Bizarre Adventure related, was by seeing part three. But to make things even more confusing... The way this OAV was made, it's 13 episodes, but the first six episodes are actually the end. And it wasn't until many, many years later, I would say 2000s or so, mm -hmm. that they actually went and did OAVs that led up to right. where those 90s OAVs actually began. Now, in the DVD release here, they just did them in chronological yeah, order, Yeah, they right? just did them in chronological order, such that it's not suddenly, who are these people? But I think that's just the way right. JoJo's worked for people, because it expects you to not have any idea what's going on. Well, I think it's more like it expected everybody to have read the manga. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. To go over what JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Parts 1 and 2 is, it's faster if you just go to a review index at AnimeWorldOrder.com and listen to those segments. But... The premise for part three is something like this. It's the 80s, very early 80s, when this takes place. And you'd never know from the fashion. <laughs> and completely transparent. But it introduced a concept to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure that has pretty much been the thing that everyone knows JoJo's Bizarre Adventure to be about. Yeah. And which greatly improved the series, I think. Yeah, in, in the previous installments, we were talking about our heroes, Jonathan Joestar, and, and then in part two, Joseph Joestar, and how they would uh, fight using this power called the Hamon, or the Ripple, to fight vampires. Lame. Nowadays, anime where you fight vampires is generally the mark of your shitty anime that's going to be broadcast on Adult Swim. <laughs> Araki is a futurist. He 
thinks forward. He sees the writing on the wall. He was like, you know what? Vampires, just plain old vampires, aren't going to cut it anymore. And he came up with the concept of stands. A stand in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is a spiritual creation, a projected being that is a manifestation of somebody's psyche or something to that effect. There's been a lot of things since then that have been inspired by this. Shaman King is a very good example. Scryed. Scryed is another excellent example. People who, when they need to fight, they call upon some other entity and has that sort of fight on their behalf, such that if the entity takes damage, maybe they take damage too. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some sort of link between them. And why the name Stand? Well... You know, Araki is a Captain English, and he decided, oh, well, because it stands <laughs> by you, it is called a stand. <laughs> There's no explanation as to where stands come from or who has them, at least in this part. Yeah, that comes later. I actually prefer no explanation for well, some people have stands. Deal with it. I think once they actually explained where stands came from, that was kind of lame. It's kind of like Hannibal Lecter. Mm. You're not supposed to know what resulted in the creation of Hannibal Lecter. What are you talking about in this Hannibal Rising crap? It's no good. It's just, it just is. Stands. <laughs> yeah. Go. The main character of part three is a gentleman named Jotaro Kujo, who is yet another one of those 17-year-old guys. Who look like they're 30. 35-year-old man. <laughs> yeah. Your typical Shonen Jump asshole. I don't think he's an asshole, necessarily. Um, no, he's just a stone-faced hero. He's more similar to Kenshiro than yeah. Slam Dunk asshole. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. Whose name I'm not going to dignify by saying it out loud. Fuck that guy and slam dunk. I mean, he can be kind of an asshole, especially to girls. The ladies love him, though, because he's an asshole. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I learned how to be. But anyway, <laughs> there are two characters who sort of carry over from the previous installments. And the way this one starts off is that the hero from the second part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Joseph Joestar meets up with Jotaro, who is actually his grandson. Grandson, yeah. Joseph Joestar is now a senior citizen. He's an old man because part two took place in like the 20s, and now this is like 60 years later or something like that. I really hope I look like him when I'm as old as he is. He is a pretty damn good-looking 80-year-old man or whatever he is because he's, you know, totally ripped and he's got his Indiana (laughs) Jones fedora. No whip, technically. He declined pretty fast between part three and four, though. Yeah, that's why more reason why part four is a, a step down compared to part three. Yeah, the Hamon generally makes people live longer. They look a lot younger for a long time, as you can tell from, like, Lisa Lisa and some of the other people, Dire and Straits and all. Wait, there's an explanation for it? It's not just, this is Araki drawing? No, it's because of the Hamon. They talked about it in part two. But again, if you never read part two, it's just, okay, whatever. Hard-ass old man confronts quasi-delinquent. Jotaro is wearing, arguably, a high school uniform. (laughs) I use that term in air quotes because the main thing (laughs) that is notable about this uniform is that he has an enormous belt that wraps around him twice, plus a gigantic chain Mm -hmm. you can tell the people who made this anime had the most fun in the sound design department having that (laughs) damn chain clink and all over the place he also has a hat that merges with his hair at some point you don't know where the hat ends and the hair begins yeah they are one symbiotic being how it works that's why jotaro refers to himself as we and has weird (laughs) tendrils fly out of his body 
if he so <laughs> desires. That may or may not have happened. But anyway, <laughs> to explain the concept of what stands are, because they've never been seen before in this manga, Jotaro is sort of sequestered himself from society and needs an explanation of why he is able to control things seemingly with his mind. That's where Joseph comes in to explain, okay, well, this is what stands are. I don't know why I have a stand, but I think it's because of this. And if you remember back in part one, the villain of that was a gentleman named Dio, named after Ronnie Dio, because everybody in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is generally named after some sort of musical act. Or a fashion brand or designer. Some sort of copyright violating thing. (laughs) Which causes lots of renaming to be done, yeah. Shitty white rappers that cause these problems. The the white rappers are the greatest in this (laughs) anime. (laughs) Indeed. It so turns out that Dio, in part one, had, uh, you know, he'd gotten a hold of a mask that enabled himself to turn into a immortal vampire. And the end of part one, it seemed that Dio was uh, defeated once and for all. Apparently not. Because part three begins with the realization that Dio is still alive and out there. And so what they've got to do, they are destined to fight Dio because Jonathan Joestar was the hero of part one and then Joseph Joestar is hero of part two and now Jotaro, hero of part three and they're all descended from the same bloodline. Much like how the Belmonts must fight Dracula from generation to generation, Mm -hmm. the Joestars must defeat Dio no matter what. And so they embark upon a highly bizarre adventure where the objective is... To Egypt! We're going to find Dio, and we're going to fucking murder him. <laughs> That's the goal. It's a good road trip. However, it takes a very Kazuo Koike-like progression. You cannot just go straight to Egypt. With less rape, though. I'm just talking about the linearity of the route. Let's say a, oh, a, right, a Koike right. hero, he needs revenge, but he can't just go straight for the guy... He's got to do all kinds of twists and turns and segues and detours. Right. Well, Dio has henchmen. Yes, he does indeed have multiple henchmen who attack Jotaro and his compatriots along the way. As he keeps going, he he picks up more and more friends, each of them with bizarre and unique stand abilities. And that's how this manga plays out. Each chapter and each villain and each hero has their own unique stand ability, and you're not really sure. Right. What's this guy's stand ability? What's he going to do? I don't know. Much of this manga is devoted to critical thinking skills of finding out what a guy can do based on something that you have seen happen. That's what I really, really like about JoJo's. It's why it's pretty much my favorite action series, because most of the time... Action series just kind of have this very kind of Dragon Ball Z-esque, I'm just going to power up to the next level, and then I'll be able to punch harder, and that will let me win. But this one is very much, this weird thing happened. That must mean that this guy can do that. Let's test this hypothesis. Nope, that didn't work. (laughs) What do we do now? I just lost a body part. Yeah. Yeah, and they have to be smart about how they use their powers, because everybody's powers... Because they're specific powers, they also have limitations. And so they have to figure out how to work with the limitations of their own power and exploit the limitations of the other guy's power. Exactly. And they've used this formula to great success in shonen anime since. Yeah. Hunter x Hunter is another similar sort of example of people have kind of bizarre, mundane sort of powers. But the application of this power, when taken to the billionth level, is something incredible. 
And very much in the same way JoJo's Bizarre Adventure goes. That's mm-hmm. the main thing that people know the entire series for, is these stands and uh, the way in which stand users have to fight each other. You're not going to defeat a stand user if you don't have a stand. There's people with stands, and then there's people who are just there to die. And that is the way <laughs> of the JoJo's Bizarre World. The other thing that people know JoJo's Bizarre Adventure about as a result of this series is, and this has always existed to some extent, but the ludicrous gore and violence. <laughs> no one's allowed to just get beaten up. You have no. to kill people in incredibly elaborate and horrible ways, usually extremely bloody. Yeah. It, not an issue goes by pretty much without somebody getting just cut to pieces or torn to shreds or just punched the crap out of. Nobody's safe either. You might think that the main character is untouchable or, you know, these heroes, they've got plot armor. There's no plot armor in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure outside of maybe a couple of planks of wood that you might tie to your pectorals, which can somehow (laughs) save the day after you have been thrown out of a building and forced to fall 40 stories. And then you land, like, pretty much in an empty fountain. Yeah. And then someone drops a steamroller on you. And then shouts, For all of you 4chan users, JoJo's Bar Adventure Part 3 is where that image macro comes from. The benefit of being a stand user is at least you're hell of a tough. Yeah. Everyone's got different types of stands. The most famous one is Jotaro's stand, which is known as Star Platinum. Supposedly, all these things are named after tarot cards. Of course, Araki eventually ran out of tarot cards to derive things from (laughs) and just started to make up tarot cards so that JoJo's could keep on going. Yeah. And so he said, oh, this is the Egyptian tarot card deck. You didn't know about that one, did you? Because I just made it up. (laughs) The heroes we've got, all of them are extremely ridiculous, but Star Platinum is basically this... Fabulous dude in a headdress. Purplish-blue Aztec god hmm. thing with the ability to punch people at Kenshiro-like speeds. But instead of yeah. saying, ta he says, ora, 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 ora. Totally different. Totally different, not copyright violating whatsoever. <laughs> I like how after that, each subsequent... Jojo had his own... Different thing to say when punching somebody at 100 miles an hour. And they're all subtly different. That's the thing about part three of Jojo's. We've mentioned it in the part one review and as well as the part two review that there's a whole lot of Fist of the North Star influence in Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. In part one, the artwork was still kind of crude. Part two, it got a little bit better. You could still definitely see the Fist of the North Star touch. I think... Part three is kind of the linchpin turning point as far as Araki's art style and Tetsuohara, the artist of Fist of the North Star's art style. This is kind of the ideal merging of the two because after this point, the artwork in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure took a turn, let's say, towards (laughs) something else. Whereas right here, it's what Carl Horn has described as glam Fist of the North Star. And one of the big reasons for that is because this guy named Jinichi Hayama did the character designs for both the anime version of Fist of the North Star, and he also did the character designs for the anime for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. So 
even more so in the anime than the manga, does JoJo's Bizarre Adventure look an awful lot like Fist of the North Star. Both of them ran in Shonen Jump, and both of them had the same editor, a guy named Nobuhiko Hortier. And we've talked about in previous episodes of the show that, especially for Shonen Jump titles, the editor has a whole lot of control over the storyline and the tone and the way the manga is compared to the artist. But it's also a Glam Fist of the North Star because, one, everybody's got kind of that Fist of the North Star body with the enormous muscles and the tiny little head. Yeah, it's not as exaggerated as in the previous two parts, but they're still pretty buff. Yeah. There's nobody who is not, like, 275 pounds of muscle yeah. in this. Even, like, the Bishonin of the group, Kakyoin, is still a big dude. Yeah, exactly. But the outfits they're wearing are very crazy. Right. I mean, we talked about Jotaro, but there's another man by the name of Jean-Pierre Polnareff, <laughs> a Frenchman whose hair stands straight up as if he's, uh, I believe, kid from Kid and Play? Or was it Play? I don't remember. I'm pretty sure it was Kid. Do not bother to correct me or comment to let me know, because I am not that interested. Anyway. Ain't no turtles on that screen. That's ass. He is a white kid. Hair goes straight up, and uh, he is wearing... Maybe the evolution of the Willem Dafoe trash bag overalls from Streets of Fire. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that's the easiest yeah. way to describe this getup that he's wearing. It's only got one strap holding it up. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much his outfit. He's also got these hilarious earrings that look like it was one earring that he sort of sawed in two and then yeah. put on both ears. But here's the thing you gotta understand about JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. It set the rule as far as power level versus fashion sense. The rule is as follows. If you can fight like a motherfucker, you can dress however you damn well please. Nobody's because gonna no say one's going to say anything. What are they going to do? Make fun of the fact that you're wearing pointy elf shoes and have hearts on your kneecaps? Oh, no. look, your heart just vanished. You will fuck their shit up. I think oh, that look, was my what favorite. happened to your eyes? They're gone now. <laughs> you didn't even see what happened. You know why? Because you made fun of the getup. And nobody does that. In Fist of the North Star, not a single person made fun of Rao's helmet, the one with the giant horn sticking out of it that he presumably broke off of the front of Boss Hog after the bombs fell. You know why? Because everybody who would have made fun of that hat is now dead. That much is implied. I mean, it's just like in Giant Robo, where you have, like, Zangetsu the Midday, and he's, like, got this scholar college cap with four tassels from each side. It's like, what are you, extra smart? And you can't do that because immediately your body explodes and you end up being, you know, 300 miles on the opposite side of the planet. And you don't even know what happened. You just know that you fucked with the wrong man. Right, right. And everybody in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is prone to this. I don't know who would make fun of them, though, because they all dress crazy. Ordinary people who exist solely well, to get killed that's true. for making fun of the wrong fashion attire. I mean, Palmerath yeah. looks ridiculous. However, he has the ability to call forth a stand known as Silver Chariot, which is a knight in full armor. Who will stab you in the face. Yes, it's all like, oh, now I am going to stab you. I will do it nine times. Nine times 100. Like, as fast as Kenshiro would punch. Or as Jotaro would punch. <laughs> Similarly to being able to dress however the hell you want and look crazy is also the fact that in JoJo's, yeah, they're really manly dudes who can beat you up, but they're also incredible, ridiculous dorks. No one is allowed to be cool. But again, you, who's going to say anything? Oh, look, a plug in the wall. I'm going to stick my hand close to the... Oops, 
I just got <laughs> electrocuted. That was dumb. No one's going to say yeah. that was dumb. Because then next thing you know, your entire body is wrapped in purple tentacles and you're being thrown through yeah. the streets of Egypt. It just doesn't go that way, you know? I mean, we talked about how some of these uh, characters are named after famous musical acts right? and how this could potentially bring up problems in America. Well, when I first saw JoJo's, I didn't really know pretty much any of the musical acts. Like, I hadn't even heard of Dio. But there was one uh. that I did know all about. <laughs> Possibly the deadliest and most formidable adversary in all of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure history. Yes. Even more so than anyone else, a man by the name of Vanilla Ice. Oh, man. Vanilla Ice is... Deadly in his music oh, and yes. deadly in his character. If you had a problem, he would solve it. And he is basically this large, muscular man who is not wearing pants. No. He has... <laughs> Long white hair, hearts in uh, hilarious places. Well, he had to coordinate with Dio. It, it was very important. Dio's got henchmen, and the most loyal henchmen emulate his fashion sense. Yes. Everybody in America knows who Vanilla Ice is, whether they admit it right. or not. Even mm. if they were born years later after the fact, hopefully a responsible citizen has shown them the movie Cool as Ice. <laughs> Possibly the greatest movie ever. Capcom, as Clarissa said, they released a fighting game for JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, not just in the arcade, but also on the original PlayStation and the Dreamcast. And mm -hmm. once they discovered, oh, wow, all these characters are named after American musical acts and such, they had to change the names. So Vanilla Ice was just called Iced in America. Right. And there was a character named Mariah after, like, Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey. She was changed to, like, Marania or something like that. No one else is allowed to have that first name, ever. Yeah, heaven forbid. Yeah. Oingo Boingo and Steely yeah. Dan. Shaka and another guy's named Khan, and they work sort of... Jay Guile, Darby. All these things had to get changed. They didn't have to change Iggy, did they? No, I think they still called him Iggy. Yeah, because that could yeah. be just like a generic thing. It was Iggy Pop. Right. Kenny G had to get his name changed. Didn't they change Enya to something? Well, instead of spelling it the same way, they called it like N-Y-A-H. Oh, right, right. When the game came out, all these name changes happened. Much later, this was released in America by Super Techno Arts, well known for not being able to have their DVDs be stocked by anybody ever. Yeah. Probably well known for being one of the longest releases ever of the Sortist show. Oh, God, Yeah, I know. it took them years and years and years Five and years, years to release so? these 13 episodes worth of JoJo's because, again, as we mentioned before, they were such a small company, like two people that all this stuff took forever. Unfortunately, they had to change the names in their release as well, but all that really results in is the subtitles read something different. You can still clearly hear them call the guy Vanilla Ice, Yeah. but the subtitles are going to read just Iced. It's kind of lame, but, you know, I guess they were really concerned that Robert Van Winkle was going to find this DVD while <laughs> searching through the trash to find another eight ball of Coke... <laughs> And then he would come and find them and beat them to death with copies of Madonna's sex book and hardcover because he was in that. Other than that, the release is actually quite good. Yeah. The dub is there. I don't really care about it, but they did go to the effort to put one in. It's got 
5.1 sound for both the English and the Japanese, which you don't usually see. In addition to that, it's also got stereo. I know when I try and play certain things on my TV, like I don't have 5.1, and if I try and play a Blu-ray, sometimes the sound mix is kind of off. This anime is known for having really good sound. Yes. This was actually mixed at Skywalker Sound place where Star Wars and other big deal movies were done. It was mixed by this guy, Marco D'Ambrosio, who is very well known. He's done other anime things. Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust comes to mind immediately. He did some hentai in anime as well, like surround sound for that. (laughs) And he did Gumby. He did Gumby as well. Gumby is really uh, an assault (laughs) on the senses. Damn it. (laughs) That clay flying around your head. Each disc of the anime came with, like, little tarot cards. Oh, yeah, they, they put lots of little extras and stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, there's disc extras as well as mm-hmm. the physical extras that you'd get. They'd put a lot of artwork and that sort of thing. The only problem yeah. was, again, the discs were pretty hard to find. And now that we talked about in the news a while back that people complained about the content of this anime where you know Dio allegedly read from a, a page in the Quran because the animators put a random Arabic page in. They do not really sell this anywhere anymore. I did check Right Stuff in their bargain bin, and uh, they've got a few random discs, like almost all of them actually. Like They're maybe only missing yeah. one or two, and those are about $10 right now, maybe less. It's worth picking up. Yeah, it's definitely worth picking up. I would say, I mean, you were talking about you don't really like the Dragon Ball Z style fighting. It's okay. It just gets boring sometimes. When you say Dragon Ball Z style fighting, you mean like the narrative powering up sort of thing. But there is a lot of super powered things being smashed around yeah. and getting hit and flying back. The difference is... It is finishes like, in an episode? Yeah, in every episode pretty much, except <laughs> in Dragon Ball Z and that sort of thing, they'd always be blowing up cities and stuff. You never see any collateral damage. Maybe the dub would write around it and say, oh, we've abandoned the city. But even in the Japanese version, you didn't really see what a fight like this would result in were it to happen in a crowded metropolitan area. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure does not skirt around this one bit. There is absolutely massive amounts of collateral damage as far as loss of random human life is concerned where the fights in this take place. And again, everybody dies just horribly. Yeah. When I uh, first saw this, I actually hated it a lot. I did not like how incredibly violent it was. I felt really sorry for all these people who did nothing wrong, did not deserve to be killed or have to murder innocent people and then be murdered in cold blood themselves. And then you died inside. And then the Wing Commander movie came out (laughs) starring Freddie Prinze Jr. that what did it? And something inside of me died. From then on... This is the North Star and JoJo's greatest anime ever made. It's actually interesting how that works, how the innocent bystanders, the death of them can actually be more disturbing than anything else. Yeah, because it's kind of like, well, you had superpowers and you were fighting someone else with superpowers. It was kind of a even ground sort of thing and you right. were seeking each other out. This person, they were just walking on the sidewalk. Yeah. They didn't know what the fuck. And they didn't even yeah. see what killed them because ordinary people cannot see stands. Yeah, only other stand users can see them. It's just suddenly, shit starts exploding. But despite all that, despite this uh, reputation that JoJo's has as being this thing with people fighting each other and it's super violent, the single most memorable episode of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure that everybody remembers, whether they love it or totally hate it for whatever reason, is actually an episode with no fighting at all and pretty Mm -hmm. much no blood whatsoever. Mm -hmm. 
and I talked about this briefly. I alluded to it during my review of Kaiji last episode, but this is an episode in the middle that is about gambling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because not all stands are directly used to fight. Right. Some stands could just be objects. Some stands could be something that only works under certain conditions or requires something to happen first. In this case, they encounter a man who has the ability to steal your soul, but he only has the ability to steal your soul if he wins it through gambling. <laughs> That's pretty specific. I really wonder how he found that out. Yeah, just one day he was gambling <laughs> and was like, you're out of something to bet? I'm just going to take your soul. Bet your soul because if you don't have your soul, you can't make it through <laughs> those automatic doors that open when you go to the supermarket. <laughs> and then how will and you your get your life is bet? over. You'll have to wait for someone else to walk up to those doors. What will your life be like then? Dude, I, I've taken a soul. This is pretty fun. Let me start doing this for a living. <laughs> From now on. Some of them are so specific that I just wonder how anyone ever figured it out. Right, right. It's very like the characters in the Law of Ueki. Okay, how did you know that, yeah. okay, you have this ability to do this. turn trash into trees. I like towels into steel only if you're holding your breath. <laughs> yeah, I like the one in part five where it seems like it should be absolutely impossible for this person to know what their stand is. I don't know. Maybe the heart of the cards tells them. But Maybe. in any case... They end up having to gamble with this man in order to defeat him. And it's all about what the gambling manga entails. Like, everything that makes the gambling manga awesome, like I talked about in Kaiji, shows up in this fighting manga. It's totally awesome, and it's this episode everybody loves, even though it has uh, pretty much no violence in it to speak of. And yeah. I think everyone should watch JoJo's Bizarre Adventure just for that episode. I mean, sure... They left out the other one, though, right? With the guy who played video games? That was not in the anime. There was yeah, another guy. Yeah, that one was who, really good, too. In the manga, who he played video games and he had to play video games to live. Yeah. <laughs> if you lose at the game, you lose at the game. We know people like that. And I'm not talking about any sort of. 4chan catchphrase, you lose the game. This is the real lose the game. No, he like turns you into a puppet. Oh man, he should just play people in Cheetah Man. He would just own everyone. <laughs> Shit. A lot of people hated JoJo's Bizarre Adventure when it came out because it was the kind of thing like you'd show it at the anime club and there'd be some people who'd just be totally cheering and losing their shit when they see that dude's head get twisted off and stuffed into that canteen. Yeah. And then there'd be some people who are like, this is the most retarded thing. Why are you making me watch this? You will know what kind of fan you are. There's kind of very little, eh, JoJo's was okay sort of sentiment. I do have to bring up the uh, the manga release. We talked about this in the news segment. Yeah. Viz is releasing this manga. Don't buy it. Under their Shonen Jump advanced line. It's actually, it's hard to explain what they've done with this because on the one hand, Jason Thompson, who's like the manga god of America, like him and Ed Chavez, he was the editor. And he's a huge JoJo's fan. Yeah. Huge JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fan, generally questionable taste otherwise. However, JoJo's right on, man. He's a, a pretty cool guy. You can read about the stuff he writes in uh, every issue of Otaku USA magazine. He is also the author of Manga, The Complete Guide, which he read every single manga that was released in English. He also gave TV's Patrick Macias his big break. So yeah, he's kind of the man. However, because it was released by Viz, who as I mentioned in the news segment, now they're in a position where they kind of own a whole lot of the 
domestic manga market. If they decide, well, this was a shonen title in Japan and it was geared towards teenagers. The content in this manga is very unsuitable for teenagers. So what I'm trying to say is the U.S. release of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, the manga, is edited. That took a long time to say. Well, <laughs> everything on this podcast takes a long time to say. They also skipped the first two parts. Yeah, they started straight with part three just because that was the one everybody in America sort of knew from the video right. game and the anime being out, even though nobody bought the anime because it was so hard to find. So they started straight with part three, and there are moments where there's nudity. That stuff has to be redrawn. I... um doubt they really could draw around the massive amounts of killing but i guess again this is america it's okay to murder a shit ton of people but you cannot see tits before someone sticks their hand into your neck and sucks all the blood out through their fingertips because that's how vampires roll in jojo's bizarre adventure land fucking weird i don't make the rules i just complain about them I've heard it's kind of weird because I've heard they didn't really edit much of the regular violence, but I heard they edited some of the animal cruelty. I don't know. Again, we live in a society where it's perfectly okay to murder a man, but if you murder a dog, that's out of the question. Well, that's probably just because PETA is insane. PETA is insane. And they probably just don't want to draw the attention of PETA. Who the fuck cares about PETA anymore? It's like, why do people even listen to them? Because PETA won't shut up. A lot of people won't shut up. Furries won't shut up. Well, PETA will burn your house down. Yeah, that's probably the main thing, because they're actual terrorists. But, I mean, the point is, is, like, there's no point in kowtowing to the group that says ban viewings of the Dark Knight because Batman hit a dog, even though the dog was, like, going to rip his throat out. You're supposed to, you know, reason with it or whatever. I don't know. But, yeah, the Viz manga has some strange, questionable edits. Even though I like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure a lot, I just, on principle, cannot support buying edited releases, if at all possible. Which is a pretty shitty position of me to take, because I understand the reality of what that means. However... Yeah, I'm in the same boat with you. I know it's edited. I don't want to buy. Like, I like Eye Shield 21, but I'm not buying that manga. How can you take out every constant fuck that happens in that chapter? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing the same thing. I can't buy any more Naruto, because it's edited. Pretty unfortunate. However, for those less scrupulous among us, because there's only part three available in North America officially, scans of most of the rest of it are available online. They're of questionable quality as far as uh, resolution of the scan and quality of the translation. But they'll get you through it. You can figure out what's going on. And they've done most of it. The only ones that aren't done completely is Part 6 and Steel Ball Run, which is the current running one. Do you guys have any clue at all if JoJo's sold well in manga form in America? Because it didn't really seem to start up any sort of fandom that wasn't already there. Yeah, I think it's kind of just one of those titles that's just out there and it's still coming out and it's probably not doing any better or worse than pretty much all the other manga that's out there. Yeah, It's just another thing on the shelf. Yeah, This anime, it's not nearly as long as the manga can watch it. Uh, again, it's very difficult to buy. You can, of course, download it. Uh, tracking down some of the DVDs can be done, and they are very good releases as far as that's yeah. concerned, so you don't really need to worry too much about that, other than the um, parts where they had to change the names in the subtitles. So yeah, I do recommend Jojo's Bar Adventure Part 3. I do think this is uh, my favorite 
of all the JoJo's. From this point on, it kind of moved away from the Fist of the North Star thing and embraced more of the this is really gay element of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. <laughs> I mean, before it was just like, wow, that guy looks kind of fruity and he's in a very contorted, impossible pose. But I'm not going to mess with them. Eventually, everyone starts to look a lot more sinewy and not quite as muscular in the sense that they are here. Yeah. Are just flamboyantly queer. <laughs> At that point... I don't know if that was the intention so much as... Well, Anaki was always really influenced by fashion photography. Right. And I think things started to move more fashion design and photography into that direction. I don't remember the fashion design ever being Fist of the North Star based. Well, that's what I mean. Like, it started to move more towards that. Away from the Fist of the North Star thing. Yes, I know. That is exactly my complaint. And then also, I know Araki was really influenced by kind of classical and Renaissance artwork, and I think that there was that influence as well. A lot of dry humping going on in the classical Renaissance artwork, <laughs> let me tell you. But yeah, I mean, uh, there is a point where... I would say that it fully embraced its neo-shonen heritage, and the only people who are really diehard JoJo's fans after a point are all girls who really like yaoi manga. But don't let that stop you, because there's still crazy violence and murder going on in this comic book. I don't actually think there's that many fangirls that are into it. I mean, Zero Chan counts for like 300 people. As far as <laughs> okay, emails sent in. Say, like, I know, you know, there's a bunch of us on the community, but it's kind of a small group. It's a small, dedicated group of Fujoshi. Yeah, I think it's more like the Yaoi fandoms for, like, Kaiji and Akagi. Like, it's a very small group. There's very devoted. The difference is, like, at least I can find guys talking about Kaiji and Akagi. I never find, like, so, dude, that last chapter Steel Ball Run. Totally wicked. Oh. That is true. I don't know any guys that do talk about it. But... Lame. Other than Andrew. Andrew, but you know, he's gay. So, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 3. Awesome stuff. Do check it out. Yeah. I uh, think I'll cut it short about here. I haven't really given away anything regarding, like, who people are or what their powers are, because really that's what this comic book yeah. is all about. At least watch it yeah. for that one episode, the gambling episode. That's just a terrific, the awesome... The only caveat I will give -biting episode. is if you get these DVDs and you start at episode one... The first episodes from the newer OAVs are animated digitally using the newer animation methods, and they were done at the time when that was still coming into prominence. So it, even though it's OAVs, there's a shit ton of the digital panning and some parts where it does look kind of cheap. Once it gets yeah. to the midpoint, the animation is all cell animation, and it's very, very, very well done, very fluid stuff. I know a lot of people who don't like modern animation but do like older ones like Cell versus the digital. I like to use JoJo's as an example of like, look how it looked in these OAVs versus how it looks in this one. Right. Sure, some parts of it may look a little sharper as far as the design work, but the actual animation quality isn't as much. I mean, it's simple things like Paul Nareff running down the stairs as Vanilla Ice is chasing him down. That you just look at it and it's like, wow, they must have spent a shitload of time drawing just this. There's nothing quite as uh, eye-popping mm -hmm. in the newer OAVs. However, it does have Norio Wakamoto all over the place in the yeah. new ones as Hall Horse, the crazy cowboy with his motorcycle. And that's, oh, of course, Hall. always worth watching. Always.
And there you have it. Show 71 of Anime World Order has come to a close. Again, some of the basics. Our website, www.animeworldorder.com. Email us, animeworldorder at gmail.com. Or give us a phone call at 206-666-4296. And uh, so, what are we going to be doing next week? Well, next week is, uh, of course, conventions are impending upon us several one after the other. So it's probably very likely that after this episode, we're probably going to throw up various bonus filler things of uh, interviews or panel recordings or that sort of stuff, just because people need to remember that this feed exists. Yeah, we actually have Otakon and we have Anime Festival Orlando one week after the other. And then, yeah. Both of those, then yeah, we've, we're we've attending. got to prepare for panels for both of those as well. And so it's going to be pretty nightmarish. However, when show number 72 comes out, you can look forward to uh, me getting back on the Madhouse horse. Talked about a revolutionary man named Yoshiaki Kawajiri in the past. Just to show you his immense range and talent. It is unending. And I mean, the guy is so versatile. I'm going to be reviewing the OAV classic that is Cyber City Oedo. Which has been released about four or five times on DVD here. <laughs> I'm going to be reviewing, I don't know, I, I guess I would give it the Polly Shore Award for a most unexplainable success. Wait, you, you don't think anything with the line, have another lead anima, isn't destined for success everlasting? That's true, maybe. And, and with the tag phrase, big guns, big busts. Yeah, if, if you can't tell... I'm going to be reviewing one of ADV's very first titles that they uh, released over here, one of the earliest ones, and also one of the earliest things they dubbed. And it shows! We're going to hear that dub. A lot of that dub. Yes, a lot of it. Because you do know that sitting alone can be dangerous. Yes, many, many other lines of, of greatness from the best part of the Burn Up series, which is not saying a whole lot. No. But... <laughs> Burn Up, the original one. Who would have thought that that would have been a high watermark of any sort? Uh, yeah. Only, God. It only got worse. Uh. I didn't even know that was possible, but it is. Somehow I have in my possession like another Burn Up series that I think they sent me from ADV at some point. So maybe we'll get to that at burn some point. Burn Up W, Burn Up XS. Come on, we got to know. I'm looking at it from across the room. I think it's Burn Up X, XS. So I don't know. But, yeah, we're going to be reviewing a very bad OAV from the early 90s called Burn Up. Yeah. And that's what we do best, isn't it? Can't believe that this thing spawned a sequel, but it did. <laughs> Multiple sequels. Multiple sequels. Oh, All had to be financed by Americans, so, yeah. Thanks, America. All right, and it has been far, far too long since I've talked about BL... I know I've been slacking on that, and I apologize. That is, if there are very many people listening to this that care. I would imagine so, based on our download statistics. Really? Yeah. Alright. It's hard to tell from the commenters. I always get the impression from the people we get feedback from that it's not very many people who listen to the show, but... Uh, well, the wonderful thing about podcasting is that most of the people who hear the show never come to the right, site. Right, right. So I'm going to be getting back to that, um, talking about one of my favorite BL manga artists, Motani Modoru. There's a lot of different ones that I would like to talk about for her, and I plan on getting to a lot of them, but for now I'm going to cover 
one of the only couple of titles that have been licensed over here right now, and that is Dog Style. By Yasuomi Umetsu. <laughs> Which does not actually refer to what you think it refers to, but... <laughs> I'd love to know what it actually does refer to, because well, I can't think of anything else that's not dirty. A martial <laughs> art. we'll find out. Okay, well... Look out for that. Perhaps uh, we should stop saying, like, next week, because it's not going to be next week. Yeah. It's going to be... Yeah, you know, we would change the caption on the top of the blog, except it's also carried over to various other sites that we have no control over. So even if we did change it, it would mean nothing. Updated every yeah. week, we hope. Well, we did say we hope. Well, that's so our I think that... story, and we're sticking to it. Exactly. So even though it's been a whole year since we've done a full month where we release something every week... So maybe it would be more accurate to quote the later part of X-23 Part 2, that's our story and we're stuck with it. There you go. Yeah, check us out when the next episode is up. We're going to assume that it's not going to be during Otakon, it's not going to be during AFO, so probably a bit after that. So, yeah, check us out then.